Scott, it's me, Conan, the Immortalized Klingon. Swear to me! Swear to me, Dark Knight Rising looks good. And no one landed on the moon. This is Conan, the Pussified Klingon. And Chris Honeywell. Hello, and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 25, and uh, this is for the week of November 8th, 2010. I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with Scott Gardner. Hi! Hey! How's it going? Good. <laughs> we got a big old Star Trek Monthly Monday this month. Yeah, I'm excited. We got some good stuff we're, we, we have to talk about that we're bringing to the table today. We've got... Uh, you know, our standard original Star Trek episode, our next-gen episode, we got our DC comic, and then we've got just some other random stuff that we want to talk about. Yep, and just some special surprises, even. Yes, yes. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Yep. But I, they're, they're going to have to wait. The listeners are going to have to wait, because we're not going to spoil it. <laughs> yep. So what did you... You, uh, you had something that you, you just... You just bought this and just read this, right? This yeah, I just got just uh, uh, the new IDW Star Trek, or a new IDW Star Trek, uh, Khan Ruling in Hell. <laughs> by uh, It's written by Scott and David Tipton, and art by Fabio Montavani. <laughs> Sounds like a wine Mont- or something, doesn't Montavani, it? it just reminds me, wasn't he like... Awful like string records, like Montavani's Living Strings, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, and uh, I like Montavani the the artist a lot better than I like Montavani the musician. That's for <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's really good. It basically it basically takes off right where you'd think, uh, right when uh, Kirk and crew drop off the Botany Bay and Khan and his people on this very Eden like world. 
And uh, at this point, you know, it's a very, uh, um, very friendly, friendly for what has just happened between Khan and the Enterprise sort of break, you know. Uh, Kirk and Khan leave as sort of uh, with mutual respect and Khan's crew are sort of down on the Enterprise for stranding him there, but Khan's like, look, we've got a whole beautiful world. We can start here, you know. We're we're up to the task. And, uh, you know, that's basically what it is. It's basically the, the story of their early, you know, taming of the planet and Khan's romance with with his uh, Federation traitor lady. So, uh, what's her name? Marla? Marla. Marla MacGyver, uh, is that right? And, uh, this is sort of the intro issue, so it sort of ends when things go south for, you know, when the sun goes nova, or, you know, the, the, uh, and, uh, pretty much changes the, um, the, the planet for the worse. So, uh, I imagine most of the interesting story is going to happen after this or most of the you know story arc but uh this was a really good comic it was a nice read it was uh very it's just very well drawn the the, he really captures uh the young ricardo montalban you know his his facial expressions and uh you know he, he you really get a feel when you see the dialogue and the body language of khan it really feels like you can hear Ricardo Montalban delivering the lines. It, it, it works really well. I like it. I'm looking forward to um, to uh, issue two. And usually I've just been sticking to the John Byrne IDW stuff, but maybe I'll start getting more. My comic shop has a lot of the back issues of it, just of the stuff hanging around. So I, I've been getting the Byrne because I know he's writing it and drawing it, but it seems like some of their other writers are... Uh, pretty good i don't know i've gotten some other idea i would got an idw true blood comic not so good <laughs> not so well written but that's that's another tale for another day but uh yeah i'd recommend it i i, I really liked it i got to thinking when you were talking about this that it was you know like like young con young ricardo Montalban down on the planet and you know establishing themselves and everything it would be awesome if you know, they're all starting to forge new lives and everything down on that planet that Khan decides that his new life down on the planet is he's going to run a circus and they're going to have a talking monkey in the circus. That's a good idea. That would be awesome. I would love that. (laughs) Kind of little Ricardo Montalban crossover there. That would be excellent. I would love that. Yeah, you say that now, but, you know, there's just enough, you know, that, that... that could happen someday. <laughs> I would love that. Star Trek meets Planet of the Apes. I would love uh-huh. that. I would love that. You know, the, the you know Kirk gets uh, you know he gets a call it's from possible. Starfleet. You know, hurry home quick, and he you know they get there and they beam down and they find that they're on the Planet of the Apes. That would be awesome. I would love that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Heston and Shatner squaring off. Now that would be a ham oh. right there, man. That would be a battle of the hams. That I would, I would really, I, I could get into that. Come on, it's no goofier than like you know Star Trek X Men, where we're like you know, who was it that fought? Uh, Data, you know, it's like Data and and Colossus squared off and shit like that. You know, it's no goofier than any of that stuff. So. Sounds pretty goofy. <laughs> I, I could get into it. Well, you know, it's funny that uh, 
you know, you started to talk about that. You gave the credits on that, and uh, the book that I'm going to talk about briefly. Damned if it's not the same writer team, Scott and David Tipton. So now, uh, now I actually want to read the one that you're talking about because oh. I really dug this. You remember last time we were we reviewed the classic episode, um, A Private Little War, right? And while I was doing research on A Private Little War, um, I found out that the backstory from the Klingon side of uh, of the you know the Klingon point of view was given in an a IDW miniseries called Star Trek Klingons Blood Will Tell. And I got to think, I was like, hey, I think I have that. You know, I didn't, I'd never read it or anything, and it was books I picked up on the cheap at one of those Atlanta comic conventions, you know, for like, I'm pretty sure I got them for like 50 cents or less. And I actually got all the issues. It's a five, is it five issues? Yeah, five-issue miniseries. I got all five issues, plus I got some of the variant covers. And I just picked it up because it was IDW Star Trek, and, you know, so far that hasn't steered me wrong. But I'm like you. You know, I've pretty much just stuck to the John Byrne material. I haven't really read much, you know, IDW Star Trek that Byrne wasn't involved in. But I picked this one up just because it looked interesting. And it was like one of those, eh, maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. But then after hearing that thing about Private Little War being in there and having so many questions unanswered about that episode, I was like, you know... I'm going to sit down and read this. So I sat down and read it, and I really dug this series, man. It's cool. Because what it is, the the wraparound story that, that pulls all the issues together is there's this Klingon dude. He's, I don't know, he's some important guy with the Klingon High Council. And the backstory is this takes place during the events of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. The the Klingon moon uh, praxis has just blown up, and the Klingons realize that, you know, they're really in peril and everything. And so this Klingon guy that we follow in this story, he has a decision to make. This is on the eve of an important meeting of the Council. You know, do they or do they not seek the assistance of humanity in their crisis? And he starts to basically tell his granddaughter, he regales his granddaughter with like the history of the Klingon people and their encounters with human beings. And of course, most of their encounters with human beings involve James T. Kirk. So, you know, we get, you know, uh, it's it, every, every story in here is told from the Klingon point of view naturally. So we get, you know, the Klingon point of view of, what was that episode? Errand of Mercy, I think, the one with the Organians. You know, we get that story. Um, my personal favorite issue was the second issue, which covers trouble with tribbles. And it's funny because this was the issue I was not really looking forward to because I gotta be honest, and I know this is probably gonna shock some people. I'm not the biggest fan of trouble with tribbles. I respect it as a, as a well put together episode and everything, but I really resent it being constantly called like the best episode of the original series because I don't think it is. I, I, it's, it's a little too silly for me. You know, I think that there were much better dramatic episodes like say City on the Edge of Forever that deserve that title. But anyway, that aside, I read this issue and was really pleasantly surprised to find out that the story that they focus on in the second issue is the story of... I'm trying to remember what the dude's name is here. Let me see. I'm going to look it up real quick. It was Arn... Damn it, what was this dude's name? It it was the little skinny guy 
that at the end of the episode, he was revealed to be a Klingon agent. Remember, like, Kirk holds Tribbles in the guy's face? Right, right. And then McCoy walks over and goes, Captain, this man is a Klingon. And it's that guy's story. And that basically this guy, he wasn't one of the human, you know, according to this comic book, he wasn't a human-looking Klingon. He was one of, like, the turtlehead Klingons. But he was this little tiny guy. He was a runt, yeah. And so the other Klingons were, like, constantly beating the shit out of him and making fun of him and everything. But he was devoted to the Empire. He wanted to do whatever he could do to prove himself as a Klingon warrior. Then one shiny Christmas Eve. Yeah, exactly. The Klingon leader came to say. Yep. He he says, you know, will you agree to, you know, be a, a, a secret agent, basically, for the Klingon Empire? And so they take this poor fucking guy... And they scrape his his <laughs> skull. Yeah, I mean, they literally like like peel back the skin of his skull. They file down the uh, the head ridges and all that. Nice. They file down the ridges on his back and everything. They basically do all this cosmetic surgery to him to make him look like a human being. And it's really brutal the stuff that this poor guy goes through because of his devotion to the Empire. And it really makes what is kind of a throwaway character in that episode, kind of a, a wussy little character, it really makes him kind of a badass when you get his whole backstory. And it also makes him very tragic what ends up happening to him. Well, he's alone. done once Kirk exposes yeah. him. That's the end of his career as That's a secret agent. Exactly. And the, the, the Klingons, they want nothing to do with him. They consider him a disgrace because he was found out. And not only was he found out, they, you know, in their eyes, he ratted out the Empire and everything. So they want nothing more to do with him, which also dovetail, dovetails really nicely with his future appearance in Deep Space Nine, you know, the uh, Trials and Tribulations episode, which was an homage to um, Trouble with Tribbles. So it all ties together very nicely. I mean, the continuity in this series is really tight. And then, you know, of course, later um, episode, or later issues, uh, like issue three, that's the one that tells the backstory of A Private Little War. It gives us a lot more about Krell the Klingon, and turns out this guy is quite the badass, too. Actually fights a Mugatu on his own and everything. Nice. Cool. There's Kang's side of everything from uh, that episode we did not long ago. Oh, crap, what was the name of that episode? You know, the one with the energy creature that was making everybody fight each other. Day of the Dove. Day of the Dove, yes. And then the last issue, my only quibble with this entire story is that the subplot with the granddaughter, you could see it coming a mile away what she was going to do. I I won't spoil what she does, but it's one of those things where... (laughs) But if it's what you think she's going to do, you're probably right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. If if you think, oh, I can see where this is going, yeah, you, you know exactly where it's going. But that aside, it's still pretty good. We get a little bit of the backstory of Chancellor Gorkin and, and stuff like that. You know, I highly, highly recommend this series. It was completely enjoyable. Um, one so of maybe the- I'll start looking through the back catalog of IDW for Tipton yeah. other stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to start digging around more, too, and see if I can score more of these uh, IDW Trek comics on the cheap. Because, man, it, this was good stuff. I really enjoyed it. These guys, I mean, they seriously know their Star Trek, you know? 
Um, I didn't catch any any you know mistakes or anything that bugged me or anything that stood out to me as oh that seems inconsistent or anything. I mean they really know their trek and and really stick to it. So uh, solid stuff, man. I I I thought it was really enjoyable, and uh, yeah, Star uh, IDW Star Trek is now totally on my radar. Yep. Amen, man. <laughs> and now that you've now that you informed me that the other day that that um, Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor is probably over. <laughs> I gotta find some more. Now, hopefully, Burns is gonna be doing something else, you know, moving on to some other, you know, two short mini series to do. I noticed that I'm, there's a new. I don't know if they're minis or one shots or what they are, but I noticed that there, there's been this, these releases of it, it's like a captains series that are focusing on different Starfleet captains. Like they had one that was a one shot with Captain Sulu that I picked up. I saw and the Pike one. There, there was, was a, a Pike yeah one. Pike one, and then recently there was a Captain Jellico one, which I thought might kind of be interesting because that guy was a real ass. So I'm surprised that they did one about somebody that's actually not a heroic Starfleet captain. Yeah, that, it might, that one might be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, because he was the one. I don't know if you remember that episode. I can't remember the name of the episode, but it was the one where Ronnie Cox guest starred, and he was that real like. He was a real hard ass, and he relieved Picard while Picard went on some special mission. And then... Oh, Ronnie, I remember that. You remember that one? Yeah, Ronnie Cox played Captain Jellico, and when he took over, he and um, Riker constantly butted heads. They just hated each other. And that was a really good one, because it was the fir- one of the first examples I can remember of real tension and real conflict between Starfleet, Starfleet officers, which was something yeah. that, you know, Roddenberry was very adamant about not allowing in Star Trek. You know, he wanted to portray these people as professionals that, you know, by their century, you know, everybody just got along and, you know, everything was hunky-dory. Yeah. And as soon as he was out of the picture, you know, they started to work that stuff in. And this was one of the better times because I, I liked Riker's attitude because there was one part where... Riker had been relieved of duty, and he may have even been confined to quarters, I forget. And Jellico comes, and, and they start to talk, and Riker just tells it like it is. I mean, he doesn't hold me. He's basically like, you know, you're an asshole. I just don't like you, you know? I forget the words that he uses, but that's basically what he tells the guy. He's like, you know, you're just an asshole, you know? It was really cool. I liked that episode. I liked Riker in that because it was one of the first times you see Riker... You know, really kind of showing his his true colors that you know it, maybe he's not so much a stickler for Starfleet and for the rules is that he's just devoted to Picard and you know given a completely different boss. Oh, no, he's a Kirk man, yeah, he's yeah. a Kirk. He's devoted to Starfleet and the and the cause, but he will also you know he's also all about his friends and his you yeah. know his or his Starfleet family, you know, right? Yeah, and the ladies. <laughs> oh, we'll we'll talk about Riker and the ladies here in just a well, little bit. Soon enough. Soon enough. <laughs> well, you want to take a little break and come back to uh, classic Star Trek? Alrighty, Dighty. Alrighty, Dighty, do.
Star Trek, the game. A game so challenging, you need this combat control panel to play it. Launch photons, fire your phasers, engage warp speed, blast Klingons and alien saucers on your way to the ultimate enemy, Nomad. Is it the most challenging game in the galaxy? It's inhuman. Star Trek from Sega. Captain's log, stardate 3541.9. The presence of Nomad aboard my ship has become nightmarish. Warp 9! Cut your circuits! Warp 10, Mr. Scott! Impossible! Easy for stop! Condition red. Condition red. What do we do now? Go up and knock? I felt like music. What is music? Keep away from my study! Say it! Say it! He's dead, Jim. Captain. Welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Mondays, number 25. And this time around, we're going to be looking at the classic Star Trek episode, The Changeling, which originally aired September 29th, 1967. And uh, Chris Honeywell is going to give you the skinny on this episode. The Changeling, stardate 3451.9 <laughs> in standard bullshit. Stardate Manor. <laughs> the Enterprise investigates the destruction of the Malurian system's four billion inhabitants and locates the unexpected source, a self-contained computer slash space probe of great power called Nomad. The device threatens the Enterprise, but Kirk and company are temporarily saved when Nomad mistakes Captain James Kirk for its creator. Terran scientist Jackson Roykirk. Nomad, a space probe launched in 2020 to seek out alien life in the galaxy, had been damaged by a meteor that confused its programming and cut it off from Earth. It had then encountered an alien probe, Tanru, which had been launched to secure... I'm sorry, Tanru. <laughs> which had been launched to secure sterilized soil samples. The resulting hybrid mechanism believes that its mission is to destroy imperfect life forms. Its altered programming and offensive slash defensive weapons make the changeling capable of fulfilling its new mission. Kirk uses the machine's confused image of him as a basis for its destruction. He convinces Nomad that it is imperfect, and the device is transported out into space immediately before it self-destructs. And, uh, yeah, that's... Sounds about right. Yep. First off, I just always love... I don't know how many times I use it as Kirk's name being some, you know, just story point. Right. You know, Roy Kirk, Kirok. (laughs) I am Roy Kirk! (laughs) Well, right off the bat, the, the, the giant thing for me in this one is 
all of the similarities, all of the uh, parallels between this episode and Star Trek The Motion Picture. And while I was watching it, I, I was starting to keep a little list, you know, kind of ticking them off in my head of just all the parallels. And, and it got to be so many that I was finally like, okay, you know, we can just talk about this as a broad subject rather than go down this massive list of all the things. But there are a lot of things. I mean, right at the beginning of the of the episode, you know, there's the missing, you know, outpost, just like, you know, in, in Star Trek, the motion picture, V'ger absorbs, what was it, Epsilon 9. Right. And, right. you know, the absorbed photon torpedoes, that happens at the beginning of the motion picture, you know, when the Klingons fire the torpedoes into V'ger and just all these different things right down the line. So in a lot of ways, you know, the motion picture is, is you know, the, the big screen, big budget remake of this episode right along a lot of lines a lot of similarities about the only thing that's really different is the end you know that i think v'ger has a much more noble and interesting and science fictiony ending to that story yes. than nomad does which is nomad is is defe defeated very much in original series style of just well just beam it out into space error yeah. error yeah, error him. error <laughs> <laughs> love the Kirk versus computer episodes, man. I always, always. love how Kirk error, error. can out <laughs> argue the computer. I, I love that. I hope I live long enough to where, you know, rather than just getting like a blue screen of death on, on your computer that you can actually argue with the, with the friggin' thing, you know, that when you get a computer you know, that's acting up or whatever, you just start talking to it and you can, you know, either argue it to straighten out or argue it into committing suicide, one or the other. <laughs> I have, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe all my computers that have died have been suicides, but I didn't do it by logicking them. I did it by just slow years of abuse and neglect. <laughs> it's never been just a few punched commands that like send them into a logical spiral that make them smoke pour out of them. <laughs> error, 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 error. <laughs> now I noticed right off the bat that uh that there was a lot of references to warp speeds greater than ten. You know, ten or greater, I guess I should say, yes. in this episode. Yes, we heard like I think that we heard mentioned up to like warp fifteen, 15. at one point. Yeah, that was the note I had was warp fifteen. So yeah, so at some point they must have retooled that scale. I want to say that we had a listener that actually chimed in about that a while back, and now I can't remember who it was or what exactly the the thing was that they the point was that they made. But I I think that was essentially it was that somewhere between original series and. I don't know what, I guess next gen that they, they basically realigned, you what know, the, warp, the what, what war, yeah, warp speeds and speed limits and all that. Because I can remember that being a huge story point of the book, um, Vendetta, the, the next generation novel Vendetta was where at the end of the story, the, they, they trick, the enemy into basically accelerating to warp 10, which was like the speed of eternity or something like that. And it got stuck in like this temporal 
what's it that you know where it was always going to just be constantly accelerating towards warp 10 and never realizing that that this was eternal that it was never going to actually get there kind of thing it was really weird but it was cool you know it was a cool it almost like froze time for them basically yeah exactly yeah exactly they were living in like this micro moment or something yeah exactly yeah it was a real moment it was a cool uh not possible not possible error error (laughs) not logical error speaking of errors all right i caught some doozies in this one one of the big ones is all right we see uh you know scotty gets zapped by nomad in that one part you know he's, he's racing over to to stop it from what well, is when it's zapping Uhura, right? Right. He races up behind it, brain out, <laughs> sucking her brain out, and he races up, and Nomad like zaps him, flings him over the rail, and Scotty's dead. All right, but every other time that we see Nomad zap somebody, you know, in in defense or whatever, he vaporizes them. Yeah. So why is Scotty not vaporized? Why is he, he's just simply blasted? Maybe he doesn't want to kill people in front of his creator. Maybe he feels some sort of shame. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wondered that, too. I got an even better one. A little bit later on, after the whole Scotty thing, this is much later in the episode, they walk into sick bay, and uh, I think it's McCoy's assisting Nurse Chapel, you know, like helping her up off the ground. And somebody or other says the line, she tried to stop it. You know, meaning Nomad. You know, she tried to, to stop Nomad, and Nomad zapped her. All right, so why isn't she dead? Because everybody else that tries to stop Nomad, they get killed. So why did she I just think, get, like, I think, knocked I think down? You've just, I think you've just finished my bullshit theory that I'm gonna, uh, I'm about to uh, introduce. <laughs> that Nomad only meets people with the same force that they meet him with. So huh? Scotty was doing a full body fling at him, so he just, you know, exactly. knocked him dead. Nurse Chapel probably was, like, getting in his way and, like, no, you can't, you know. She wasn't, like, attacking him, so he probably just knocked her out. The guys that got the guys that got vaporized, they pulled phasers and fired on him both times. So he maybe he just, like, oh, phasers? Okay, I'll phaser you, you know. <laughs> That's all I can figure I guess. So he be- I mean, the he real some- reason, of course, is that they're both, you know, they're, they're primary characters to the show. You know, right. so they weren't going to vaporize Scotty because there's no bringing, bringing him back from that. But still. But they will, but they will leech a dramatic moment out of his death. It's one of those, he's dead, not really moments. It's Star Trek does that a lot. <laughs> it, yeah, they do do it a lot. In character and. And I remember then it's like, oh no, it was just a robot, or you know, oh well, you want me to repair him? I remember when the internet was new, or at least when I was first discovering the internet, and there was an early Star Trek site somewhere that had, you know, just mostly comedic Star Trek stuff on it. And there was this list of all the times and instances and episodes and comics and everything where Star Trek principles got killed and came back because everybody knows Spock. You know, everybody remembers Spock dying and coming back, you know, in the next movie. But at one time or another, 
I'm pretty sure that all seven of the the primary, you know, the guys that we think of as the classic Star Trek crew, I think they yeah. all died and come back. At least they've once. all had some moment where, yeah, like I can I can remember right off the bat, Chekhov a couple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a, a of course uh, McCoy and Shirley gets off. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk, God damn, you know the one that comes right to mind off the bat is is the. Uh, Vulcan Death Grip episode. Mm-hmm. You could technically say Uhura in this one. Or do, doesn't Charlie X make her disappear and bring her back or something? No, that was Janice. Some, okay, so there's her. <laughs> <laughs> um, Scotty gets it in this issue, episode. I'm I'm sure I could think of one with Sulu too, but I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm yeah. sure there is one with Sulu. Oh my. Somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere. But I, I I get a kick out of that. You know, the, I can forgive the Scotty thing and the and the um, Nurse Chapel thing, but the 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 one I can't forgive in this is the the thing with Ohura. I think if they could find a way to to excise, that's my biggest. Yeah, that that is just it's just flat out stupid as shit. It is, and not only is it stupid, but they don't just gloss over it. You know, usually with stupid shit like that, they'd be like, oh, we'll just re-educate her. And then they might have a quick scene of like, okay, she's doing okay. But they had the whole scene with very good Uhura. And then right. the whole thing is like, the whole thing is like, well, you know, we're having trouble. You know, she's coming back, but she's coming back in Swahili. Well, okay. Yeah. Okay. So she was originally Swahili, but if Nomad wiped her memory, he wiped her memory. Why would she have memory of, right. you know, of of speaking Swahili as much as spe- you know? Come on, it's just, it's just stupid. You know, they should have they should have figured he did he like reset her memory or something or you know, and that she could reaccess it, but it was going to be a slow process of, you know, re hooking up all the neural connections, you know, and so it would be done through reeducation, but. No, they pretty much, you know, pretty much, Nomad pretty much said, no, her memory's gone, it ain't coming back. <laughs> her memory was delete, you know, I, I, I put, I threw it in the garbage and hit delete and it said, are you sure? And Nomad said, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, which, which, the gar- you know, that causes so many questions later on about, you know, we, we reviewed that comic last time around where she ran into that old friend of hers, you know, that old flame. Well, why would she remember this guy? She shouldn't have any memories of him, right? Yeah, who the hell is he? She shouldn't remember anything before, the, right <laughs> before after this episode. Yeah, up. it it doesn't it doesn't work at all. The only way that yeah. that, that it works, the only way it works error, for me error, error. is is if it turned out to be you know a, a, like a temporary amnesia situation where you know he absorbed her right memories or whatever you know her her knowledge but then it slowly you know came because otherwise yeah i mean come on the fact that they could completely re-educate this woman to the point where she could actually resume her duty station within like a week i'm i mean come on you know it, it's it's right. things like that that give star trek a black eye you know what i mean yeah i mean should <laughs> should she have been just like I mean, should, she should have just been a, a vegetable, basically. Like, you know, she should have been, like, beyond Pike. 
<laughs> situation. <laughs> she should have been like on the bed, just like drooling, just like drooling and staring blankly into space. You know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my god. I do like the line though where uh Nomad examines Uhura and then he says uh That unit is defective. Its thinking is chaotic. Absorbing it unsettled me. That unit is a woman. A mass of conflicting impulses. Yes, yes they are. <laughs> <laughs> And just just another n- another prime example of of like how progressive they are in the future. <laughs> it's like everything's progressed, but you still got Kirk say like, wasn't it what like two or three episodes ago where Kirk had some he had some line at the beginning of the show about you know women you know you you know once they're out of the kitchen <laughs> you know some sort oh, of yeah. Oh, that, that, that woman was gonna go off, you know, she'll meet the right man and out of the service she'll go. <laughs> she'll be out and, of, she'll be out of Starfleet, like, she'll uh, go. Not necessarily, dude. She could become your boss one day. You never know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely the 60s version of Star Trek, you know, the original series version of Star Trek. Yeah, not, not as progressive as, it doesn't seem as progressive looking back now. In some aspects, especially when it comes to yes, men, you know, male female relations. I think yes. Now I watched this as the um, the enhanced version, and I really liked you know some of the improvements, some of the the yeah, so enhanced special effects. But one thing that really bugged the crap out of me, it, it was one of those, you know. I equate it to like the George Lucas special editions of Star Wars. You know, things where you look at it and go. You spent a million dollars to fix something that I really didn't notice before anyway, and you left in this glaring, you know, thing that bugs the crap out of me. And this, you know, redone episode, you know, remastered episode, did the same thing, which is, you know, they, they went in and they, they touched up the special effects and everything, but they never touched Nomad. And he wobbles like crazy in this episode. You can that, tell that the that damn thing hard. is on a wire. Sometimes he's on a wire. Sometimes he's on. It depends on what kind of scene it is. Yeah, I, mean, I just figured it. I, I just figured they have good air circulation on the Enterprise, so he was like <laughs> catching little drafts all over the place. I mean, I agree with you that that error, would probably error. be really difficult for them to do. You know, but I, I, I you know. I know that they could do it if they really wanted to. It would just be a matter of going in and, and rematting and crap like that. But I'd like them to do it. You know, because it would just add something to it if it didn't look like, you know, they had the thing on a fishing pole and somebody was walking it around and it's swaying like crazy. It just, it looks really cheesy in a lot of scenes. And you know, the Nomad probe itself actually looks pretty cool, except for the goofy blinky lights. It's like, if it's going to be out <laughs> as a deep space probe, why does it need blinky lights? You blinky know? lights and they click and stuff. You hear stuff inside, like his computer and calculating stuff. And click, 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 click. It's like really <laughs> get those gears turning there, Nomad. <laughs> Super computer. There was a uh, security guard that looked just like Kirk Douglas in this episode. I noticed. I just had a quick yeah. It, it, this one had the, the same thing. That happened, I think, in the last um, episode that we did of Next Generation, 
where, you know, they find Nomad, they finally figure out what the hell it is. And then later on, Kirk all of a sudden ha- explains some part of it by going, Oh, yes, I remember a lecture we had on Nomad. You know, but uh, oh, all of a sudden now he remembers, you know. After <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, you know, he's, it, 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 was, it was a very uh, just bad, bad story. <laughs> well, I was thinking yeah, that at the end of the episode, exposition. you know, you know, it's revealed that Nomad's confused primary purpose is to sterilize, sterilize, sterilize. And so Kirk talks Nomad into destroying himself. So I'm thinking that actually the best synopsis for this episode is Kirk narrowly avoids sterilization. Yes. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> <laughs> and this is another thing when Kirk ex- when when Kirk explains him the whole logical error thing. If I was nomad, I wouldn't self destruct. What the logical thing to do would be destroy everything else, then self destruct, and you would still be able to fulfill your your primary purpose. You know, if you destroy yourself, then you won't, he won't fulfill his programming because he'll leave ever, all the other imperfect life forms alive. So it would be better to kill, you know, he'd be like, yeah, you're right, Kirk, I am an imperfect life form. I'll get to me right as soon as I get all the rest of the ones in the universe. Thanks for clearing that up for me. <laughs> That's what I would have said if I was bad. Yeah, but he was but, a clicky yeah, 60s No bad is space happy, so, yeah. you know, he's a little bit space happy. Yeah, he's and hey, it's not often that that Kirk and crew get to actually save the Earth. They usually save the Enterprise or people on a planet or something. You you know, but like the motion picture, they get to save the Earth. I wonder. You know, there's times that I really, I really wish that we were doing these episodes in release order rather than our random. As much as I love the random thing, because sometimes it's difficult. To place when did historical events actually happen for the first time? So I'm wondering what is the first instance of the Enterprise crew saving the Earth? I don't know if it would be this again because this is what this is like early to mid second season. I mean, were there any other instances of them saving the Earth before now? I mean, I would I could argue I could make an argument that they technically saved the Earth. In um, City on the Edge of Forever. I mean, they at least saved it from the Nazis or whatever. Right. You know. But, I mean, as far as, like, you know, what you're talking about, like, you know, alien probe, alien being, you know, alien ship, whatever, comes to Earth and is going to blow up the planet or sterilize the planet or whatever. Yeah, they're usually nowhere near Earth, you know. Yeah. Was, uh... Where was the Doomsday Machine headed? I know it was headed to a populated area, but was it eventually going to come to Earth too? I can't. I can't remember. Probably. I think. I think. There's, I, I seem to remember there was a. <laughs> Why not? You know. I mean, it's a big universe, but there's a lot of time too. So it's got all the time in the world. The eventually is what I should say. But I seemed. I'll, I'll have to. I haven't watched that one in in years and years. But I seem to remember there was some sort of like it's and it's heading for Earth. You know. I I remember the 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 thing in the episode. It, it seems to me 
that they made a point in that particular episode that it wasn't the Earth that was being menaced for a change. That it, I remember it being like the Deneb colony or some shit like that because Kirk gets all worked up about it. It's like, there's four million people and that, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, but it, it, <laughs> it, it always stuck out in my mind that they were, they were actually purposely saying it was something other than Earth for a change because that probably does get to be a, a, a big cliche in science fiction after a while that it's always the earth it's always the you know especially in star trek where there is literally a federation of planets i mean to my mind we never got a story of you know big space whale comes and is going to exterminate andoria you know it's always the earth you know <laughs> there's all these other you know that you know there's one nice thing i could say about the new movie is uh you know vulcan it's Vulcan that's threatened for a change. Yeah. You know, that doesn't happen very often either. You know, I can only think off the top of my head, I can only ever think of one other time where Vulcan was threatened by, you know, space threat, which was that, I can't remember if it was the two-parter with Spock. I know it's it's one of the ones that had Tasha's daughter, the Romulan commander in it, and they were going to sneak in like a Romulan fleet. And uh, and attack Vulcan and try like try to retake Vulcan or some some shit like that. But I can't remember if that was the Spock two-parter, if that was another two-parter. I don't remember, but that was the big plot in that one is that they were gonna they were gonna attack Vulcan. You know, basically, I don't know if they were gonna kill everybody or not, but you know, Vulcan was definitely the threatened planet in that one. But you know what I mean? It, 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 it yeah, it just seemed like there were a lot of you know. It's a big universe. There's a lot of planets to yeah. threaten. Yeah. I liked the little line at the end where uh, Kirk was choked up about the loss of Nomad, you know, and Nomad thinking that, that Kirk was his father. And then Kirk, you know, Kirk has the line, my son, the doctor. And it kind of gets you right there. And I was thinking, hmm, it's kind of prescient with uh, David Marcus. Actually, that's true. Way on down the line, you know it was. Well, it's his funny son, because that's 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 a cla- It's that's I mean that's a classic Jewish mother joke. You know that's the you know that that was the 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 Jewish mother jokes were always you know the Jewish mother talking about her son the doctor, which is funny because both you know Kirk, Kirk and, and Spock, Spock are both, both Jewish actors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of them's even Canadian. So, so I, I thought it was fine. I was like, I wonder if uh, McCoy and Shatner were just like, haha, Jewish mother joke, you know. <laughs> Which is very possible, you know. They might, they might actually have thrown that in. I mean, that's where Spock got the uh, live long and prosper. Yeah, was he was watching some rabbis do some hand signals that they do, and he picked it up from them. Mm-hmm. Oh, we will. Which is see- really funny. I'd, I'd like to know what it really means, you know, and that whatever you know means live long and prosper. Well, that's what it means <laughs> in, now. It just could have been the letter P, bro. <laughs> we will see uh, parts of no error, error, error reused in other episodes. I can see this being a new thing for you that uh, when, <laughs> whenever well, something I, just... I have another new thing. There's a quote in this episode that I think we should use and abuse oh, no. of Nomad that we should cut, and that is... The unit, Scott, is repaired. 
<laughs> Every time you have like a flip out, you finally calm down. We should play the unit Scott is repaired right. at the end of it. We yeah. need to start using and abusing that one. The one that could I'd be that really... could be a drinking game for our listeners. You know, the, one of the clips, there's a lot of clips that we actually should use from Star Trek, you know, and I'm not talking like the cliched ones like Live Long and Prosper or Beam Me Up or whatever. I'm talking, you know, just comedic, you know, ones that could be used to comedic effect. But one I'd really love to use is from uh, Corbomite Maneuver, um, Baylock's Countdown. You know, we keep saying things like, you now have two minutes. Left. I love that. <laughs> But there's another <laughs> podcast out there that I don't know if they still use it, but they used to use it, you know, toward the end of their episodes. When there was literally like two minutes left in the episode, they would give a little announcement of, you know, that would go off. I think they must have had it programmed into their computer because they'd be talking away and it would just suddenly go off. So they must have had some timer program or something. But it was it was hysterical. Every time it would go off, it would just crack me up. But, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely see Nomad reused because I know that, Parts of him are reused for, I want to say it was the Romulan cloaking device. I could be wrong, but I'm, I know that there's at least a couple episodes where, where Nomad, you know, mostly Nomad or like significant parts of Nomad are, are seen as other objects. And I'm pretty sure it's the one where, the, the one you were t- just talking about where, you know, the Vulcan death grip, you know, where, where Kirk disguises oh, yeah, itself with, as yeah, a romulan the, and goes over and steals the cloaking device i'm pretty sure that that's yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> and then uh just literally as we were sitting down to record this i remembered something else really significant to you and me anyway um related to nomad which was nomad was i guess in modern video game terms what you would call the big boss battle on each level of Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. Be the captain of the Starship Enterprise. Remember, you would get to the end of the level, and you had to battle Nomad every time. Oh, that's right. Remember that? He would he would just sort of he would just sort of whip around the screen and mm-hmm. drop in like like mines. landmines yeah. behind him. Yeah. And just whipping all around. I can't believe That's I almost right. forgot that because it, the you know I played the 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 Atari version much more than I ever played the um, arcade version. But the way I remember it is it would you would come in at the beginning of the of the game, and you would have two levels that were the standard level everybody remembers, where you know you you came in and you had to defend star bases from the Klingons, and you did that twice, and then there was a level where you had to navigate an asteroid field. And I think you docked or something, didn't you? I think you docked with star bases inside the asteroid field or something like that. Then you came back out and had one or two more levels defending star bases from Klingons again. And then you had your boss battle. And your boss battle was always Nomad. And I can remember in the in the arcade version, I would do pretty good against Nomad. But in the home video game version, I would get my ass kicked every time. That's where I would always lose my most shields was on that level because Nomad, like you say, he would drop a bomb and then quickly move to a different part of the board and you had to chase him but without either running into mines or like the mines were on a timer. So after like a couple of seconds, they would start going off and if you were close enough to the blast radius, it would weaken your shields. And if I managed to survive those levels, I would always come out of it with, like, no shields going into the next Klingon battle. Yeah. It's like, damn it, you know? 
<laughs> that game was tough. It was great, but it was tough. That was a hard game. I loved it, though. I loved the uh, the home video version, because that was one of the few... Well, I'm just... Uh -huh. Now I'm remembering the, the way it was... Didn't you warp by pulling down... Some, your, yeah, yeah. You some, would like warp. You would like disappear and appear back in a random sort of like uh, asteroid. Right, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like the and the arcade one. You would just travel in a straight line really fast. But in the home one, I think you're right. I think you would like, like, uh, almost like teleport to a random part of the board. To a random yeah. spot. Yeah, it was a, it was a bitch. Because that was one of the first games, maybe the first game I can remember that had an overlay for your Atari controller that told you, like, the 10 billion combination. You know, and it's funny, too, because all that controller was was a friggin' joystick and a fire button. And yeah, were, like, a yeah. million combinations for how you could do, like, photons and warp speed and, all, you know, it was all based on pushing the fire button at the same time you moved the stick a certain direction, which caused all kinds of problems if you were just in the course of a regular battle and not intending to go to warp speed, you know? You meant to turn right. Well, it also you know? caused a lot of problems with the shitty Atari joysticks that, like, once you played them for a while, their reaction wasn't the, the most awesome, you know? Right. You know, when you take them apart, they'd actually have pro those four plastic prongs for each direction, and some of the prongs would break sometimes, so... Yeah. Moving left wouldn't work with some joysticks. You were the master of always pawning off the shitty joystick to the guests in your house and then <laughs> kicking their ass on Atari. It's a habit I've noticed that my oldest son has uh, has inherited from his own his old man. That's definitely been passed down through the genes because I didn't teach him here's, that trick. He just sort of inherited it somehow. It's awesome. Yeah, here's your joystick, and then you get on it, and all of a sudden you're listing to the right or the left. <laughs> The other person's like doing double flips over you and kicking you in the head, going, yep. "What's your problem, man? You're slow." Yep, one of your five buttons works, and your character is this stuck. This joystick sucks. To the right. yeah, yeah, whatever, man. You suck. <laughs> Bastard. Error. 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 What, what else have you got on this episode? But did, do you like this one though? Because I, I found I still liked it. I love this episode. Uhura thing. I, it, it, I've been ripping on parts of it, but it's really only the Uhura thing that gets me about it. Mm -hmm. And it's almost kind of so goofy that it's fun, but it's it's stupid. You know, it's, I mean, there's no getting around how stupid. You know, you're even a kid's gonna watch that going, "What? Wait, what? Huh? Okay, whatever." And then. <laughs> yeah, whatever. They, they sort of said something, now that I'm thinking about it, they said something like, well, we can get all her personality files and stuff like that. But it's like, no, you can't give somebody their, their, you know, personality back through their Starfleet psychological profile or whatever, you know. You know, now that you but think other, about other it, But other than though. that, I mean, I did, I just, it's just easier to, to, to chew on the the goofy things about it, but I love this episode. It's you know it's got all those classic elements, and it is it's Star Trek the motion picture light. You know it's like light, the yeah. it's like the, it's, it's like um um the first Evil Dead movie. You know, and then Star yeah. Trek the motion picture is dead. You know, um, Dead by Dawn, <laughs> Evil Dead too. I never thought I'd hear that comparison, but yeah, yeah, you yeah right. That. <laughs> but you know, I, I just no, thought of something. 
they they yeah. missed they I think they missed a, a, a great opportunity here if you think about it. now granted you know this this was you know 60s TV was a whole different beast than what would come along later but one of the things I've long lamented about original Star Trek it, and I've heard a lot of people say the same thing especially people that grew up watching say next gen or one of the later incarnations trying to go back and watch the original show you know they i've often heard the criticism well it just doesn't have the 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 characterization it doesn't have the emotional depth of some of the later series and i think what they're talking about is you know beyond kirk spock and mccoy you don't really get to know the players, and and I would argue that you don't really. Well, it doesn't have the Kirk multiple storylines that they developed. It, on exactly, that. exactly. But you know, if if they did do that, you know, if they did actually develop the characters a little more instead of just threat of the week kind of you know kind of deal, this thing with Uhura could have played out really interestingly because I just thought of a character that this totally reminds me of. Do you remember um, Ms. Marvel in Marvel Comics? Uh-huh. Now, her deal was way later. I, I think it happened... I think It either happened or it was first referenced in Avengers Annual Number 10. Um, Rogue, who later became one of the X-Men, you know, her whole deal is she touches somebody and she absorbs their, you know, their personality and their mutant power and their abilities and all that junk. Somehow, and I don't know that this was ever really explained, but somehow when she touched Ms. Marvel, she didn't just like temporarily draw away her powers and everything. She basically pulled everything that she was out of Ms. Marvel, leaving Ms. Marvel a blank slate. And so I remember there being a lot of really interesting, dramatic stories done with Ms. Marvel over the years where, you know, she started to develop memories and trying to build new memories and everything, but she was always haunted by the fact that she no longer had an emotional connection to, like, her parents or, um, I'm, I'm I can't remember. Was, I don't know if it was siblings or ex-boyfriends. Right, it's or, like know. people, it's people with amnesia. It's, yeah, yeah. it's like people yeah. come out of comas, amnesia and stuff. But you know, they, like to their, you know, they they come back and they don't know their wife, you know. Yeah, and and I remember that being actually, you know, the way it was written, it was really interesting that you know you really felt for this character because she she came to be very bitter, you know, particularly against Rogue, you know, that that you know this was done to her, and trying, you know, struggling to to get her life back and and her memories and all these sorts of things. While I wouldn't want to see Uhura develop into like a bitter character or anything, that actually could have added some much needed, you know, characterization and depth to Uhura's character who never even got a friggin' first name until the J.J. Abrams movie, you know, that, you know, we could have seen that side of her of, you know, lamenting the fact of what Nomad had done to her and, and trying to. I don't know, come back from it or something. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I would have kind of liked to have seen that. And then on the other hand, if it would have just become, you know, that's all she was about was, you know, bitching about that, then I don't know if I would have wanted to see that either. But you know what I mean? All these characters, yes. I think, could have definitely done with a story. You know, more more. Yeah, of but that wasn't the know. style of the, the that, that overlapping 
storylines thing wasn't the style. It was episodic. It was, I mean, right up into the seventies. It was, it was stuff like Hill Street Blues that started developing that, you know, multi-character, right? And, you know, character, you know, character arcs that were, go, you know, three or four character arcs going on over the course of whole seasons and stuff, you know, right? At, to, to where it was more of a linear timeline, where you know, I mean. Star, any Star Trek episode can almost be watched in any order, pretty right. much, without having to worry about, you know, what's going on. Right. Backstory of anybody. The backstory is always the same, you know. So, so next week when we come back, you know, her is going to be right back to work and fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is pretty silly. So but, stupid. Uh... Yeah. Well, that but ties in nicely. Yeah, well, that's all I've got on this one. But that ties in nicely you know to our next segment, doesn't it? Well, I was just going to say because that's all we got. But that's not all that there is because we've got as as people who listened last month might remember, we sort of did a little call out to people since since you guys know what the new episode is coming up the month before. You know, we we asked for uh, some reader feedback. On what they thought of the the episodes we're doing, listener feedback. We got some. Yeah. You want me to read one of mine first? Go ahead. I got one here. It's this is a longer one. It's from uh, Luke Giacconi and Jake, uh, Jake and Eddie. Yeah, you know why? Because I want to call him El Giacone. <laughs> yeah. From... <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know. I, I do a show with him too. It, it's. <laughs> All right. Let me just read. Error, error, error. Well, I rewatched The Changeling for the first time in what must be two decades in order to send comments into the show. Yes, good. <laughs> that's what we like to do. <laughs> that's what we like to do, <laughs> get people to do things. <laughs> and I have to say that I think we lucked out with this selection. This is a very solid TOS episode with some 45 years or so after its initial airing still holds together as a strong hour's worth of entertainment. Yes, it does. Being one of the episodes completely set aboard the ship helps the effects stand up. There's no planetscape or backdrops to deal with, and Nomad itself is very well realized. I like how there seems to be three methods to shooting it. Either suspended from wires on an independent dolly, or attached to the camera's dolly. The shot of Nomad rising through the Jeffrey's tube, um, were they called that in TOS, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the prop itself is so simple and straightforward that it almost looks Art Deco and thus is pretty timeless. Um, I like the performances from the three leads. Kirk's outburst at the end of the fourth act when Nomad has to reevaluate is classic Kirk. But we also get the scene in the beginning with Kirk doing some great diplomacy. Kirk never gets credit for being a diplomat, but scenes like this prove otherwise. Uh, Spock's interaction with the probe is great, foreshadowing his contact with V'ger. More on that below. And I'm a huge Dr. McCoy mark, so seeing Bones react to Scott's death and repair along with how he interacted with Nomad really (laughs) spoke to me. Just classic Bones right there. And just an aside, and we also get the classic He's Dead Jim in this episode, too. (laughs) Uh, Most interesting to me is the many connections and inspirations which Star Trek The Motion Picture would take from this episode. I have watched The Motion Picture at least half a dozen times since I last watched The Changeling. So the connections now are so obvious and plain that they become almost comical. Between the creator, Spock's mind meld with a machine, biological infestations, the probe's return to Earth, 
the probe's encounter with the other and so on and so forth, it's p- pretty plain why the motion picture is sometimes referred to as where Nomad has gone before. <laughs> I still love the motion picture and consider it the best of the Trek films, but I certainly will see it in a slightly different light now. Uh, the major sticking point for this episode... Oh, I wonder what this is going to be. <laughs> the re-education of Uhura. <laughs> Sorry, that was really stupid and could have been cut without much loss. Yes. Hearing the Shell Nichols speak Swahili was a nice novelty, but all the scenes should have wound up on the cutting room floor. Amen. Mm-hmm. All in all, a very good episode. Probably one of the strongest original series, in my opinion. The trope of the insane machine is a classic one which Trek would revisit over and over again, but this is certainly one of the best episodes. Keep up the freaking podcasting. <laughs> uh, we will. I like that one. All right, I got one more here from Nick Martorelli, and it says, Scott and Chris, comma, Chris and Scott. <laughs> Just to make sure that... to to um. Make sure our egos are both both stroked, but well, I have I, to say, I, no, why I've... did you say Chris and Scott first, man? That's what I want to know. No, 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 no. I was just going to point Whatever. out that you know to settle this right out or off the bat, I always get top billing. So there you go. That settles that. Thanks, thanks, Nick Martorelli. Thanks. <laughs> In your last episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday, you called for thoughts regarding the upcoming episodes. Even though I watched Angel One in its first broadcast, all I remember is liking it. But as to the Changeling, I remember it very well. In addition to a flying robot that you almost never saw both the top and bottom of at <laughs> once, Nomad was awesome when I was ten, and still is now. I can get past the fact that he brings Scotty back to life. I can get, I can even get past the fact that Uhura gets her mind wiped clean and returns the next week with no other problems. And I can get past it all for one moment. Nomad. The unit is malfunctioning. Absorbing it unsettled me. Spock, that unit is a woman. Nomad, a mix of conflicting impulses. <laughs> My girlfriend smiles with veiled understanding whenever I play her this episode, although she is fighting back by dismissing some of my comic book-related discussions with, Non sequitur, your facts are uncoordinated. <laughs> error, error! I just like doing that with like a little more panic each time. It's just fun. Error, 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 error. <laughs> so I heard we had another like Star Trek related email that's not necessarily a nomad related. We do. Email. We have some awesome feedback here from our old buddy Mei Yi Chun, who we oh, haven't yes. heard from in a while. So uh, write in, Mei Yi. Let us know that uh, you know. Let us know how you're doing and that you're okay. Anyway, this one is just entitled simply "Podcast Feedback." He says, two true freaks." Both of you were in fine form for the eminently enjoyable episode number one forty one. Um, which one was that? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I had an amazing amount of fun listening to your conversation, despite the alternative factor being one of my least favorite episodes of TOS. If there's anybody listening to us right now and that's one of your favorite episodes, please write in. I need to talk to you. I've got to understand why it would be because, yeah, I don't know anybody that really likes the alternative factor. That one, I don't know. Uh, he continues, still... I've only seen it once uh, when I was quite young, so I may view it differently now. Well, that's what we thought, too, but it didn't really work out that way with that particular episode. <laughs> Since regarding the reamplification of dilithium, a quick search online using the search terms of reamplified dilithium brings up some technical discussions of it on Star Trek forums. 
My interpretation of the process likens it to the reuse of coffee grounds or tea leaves or subsequent pressings of olive oil. <laughs> you don't... I just have this image of Olive and Popeye now, which I don't really need in my head. But anyway, <laughs> you don't get the best quality or quantity out of a second use. But it's serviceable. That is that is true of olive oil, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite aspects of Star Trek. The series um, have been based on enough science so that those who are inclined can try and work out some type of no-prize explanation for the technobabble, while those who don't care can just consider the technical details as part of the plot points. That's very true. That's yep. an excellent point. And just move on, yeah. Yep. However, I thought the use of technobabble became a much bigger problem in the TNG era of shows when talky technical solutions were often used to wrap up an episode instead of dramatic story-based ones. Well, you know what that is? That's weak writing. That's what that comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, also, a part of the problem, too, is that, forgive me if I sound like I'm ripping on my own people, so to speak, but I think that TNG-era Star Trek fans are a little more anal about stuff like that than original series fans, you know, about... The techno That's okay because TNG deserves it because I remember the hype leading up to that show where they were going, we're really going to like try really hard to make this scientifically feasible or, you know, reasonable for that time, you know. Yeah, but then- gonna, they, they were talking about how they were going to make, you know, their science stick and then they totally did not stick to that at all. But then you run There's the risk of, of, of problems of you you have episode X and the thing that Joe viewer takes away from that was that dude that is totally not the way comets work or whatever and you're like dude you're missing the point it was a fucking great episode who who gives a shit about comets you know and that kind of thing happens because people get too nerdy and too well, focused on the the, the well there's also bullshit, people who are you know? really into like astronomy and stuff and and know something about it and that and that does annoy when you know something about something and then you see it on tv and and they get it completely wrong right it totally that does get under your skin you know well, i mean i'm like yeah i'm like that you know i'm like that too yeah you know yeah so yeah I, I see what you mean but yeah i do think that that somehow that decision and i understand why they did it but that decision to try to make next gen "Quote unquote," more realistic when it comes to its science, I, I think that that's definitely a, a, a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? But anyway, continuing with uh, May's uh, email here, he says, "During your comments about Star Trek number sixteen, I had a good laugh at your comment about Kirk's equal opportunity predilection for any attractive females in the Roy G. Biv range. <laughs> that actually was a pretty good zinger, if I do say so myself." It truly shows how advanced humanity uh, how advanced humanity has become in the 23rd century when even uh, differences in species are easily overcome by Kirk's raging libido. <laughs> the period background music accompanying your discussion of the big goodbye was atmospheric. I had fun with your rants about how the TNG grew uh, were shown as being unaware of concepts that surely would have su survived into their era, like city blocks, in an effort to exaggerate their unfamiliarity with the Dixon Hill holodeck environments. 
uh, as well as your funny musings on the real motivations behind uh, the bug people's actions. Your discussion over the holodeck piqued my curiosity and made me look up the pertinent details in the Star Trek The Next Generation Technical Manual by Rick Sternbach and Michael Okuda. And you know, I meant to do that myself, and I just never got off my lazy ass and did it. (laughs) He says, The gist of the text seems to indicate that two processes are at work on the holodeck. For most of the objects and scenery that people will probably have no contact with, holograms are used. A sense of touch can be created for these items by the manipulation of miniature force fields and or tractor repulsor beams. Holographic elements cannot exist out of the holodeck. For props or characters that the users will probably interact with, replicator and transporter technologies are used to create physical matter with the aforementioned tractor repulsor beams controlling it like puppets. Now, i got to stop right there because the thought that the people in the holodeck are physical beings, like they're actually replicating a human body and then puppeting it. You know what's going on. That's f***ing creepy, man. No, it isn't. You know what's happening. No, I I know that there's that aspect of it because I know that... Most definitely, that's what Riker's using the thing for. But no, I'm serious, dude. How creepy is that? That that you know, Joe, the news vendor in that episode, was was actually like a soulless, replicated human body. You know, manipulated by the. Com- that's like ah, that's that. Yeah, that's going way way too far. Plus, I don't. I don't know. It, <laughs> I have no problem I, with it. I don't know. I don't. My imagination's yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, he continues. Uh, it should be possible to remove replicator-created objects from the holodeck. Although I would imagine that the default settings would have them confined there in most cases. Well, yeah, I would. I would imagine so because again, if if the physical, if the people are actual physical manifestations, then yeah, you know, you go in there, you have it replicate. Linda Carter or something, and then drag the the body back to your quarters or whatever. Yeah, that would be kind of weird. He says, I can't remember how consistently the episode stuck to these rules. So I'm going to be the cop for that. I am definitely going to be policing that shit in future uh, episodes that we look at. Yep. He says, but at least some theoretical parameters govern the operation of the holodecks. Additionally, I believe the first appearance of the holodeck was in the animated episode Practical Joker where the Enterprise computer rebels against the crew and traps some characters in a recreation room that can simulate different environments. This episode was probably adapted into prose by Alan Dean Foster. Uh, take it easy, Mei Chun. Awesome. And you know, I don't, I couldn't say for sure if that's the one I read, but I know that it was in one of Alan Dean Foster's Star Trek logbooks that I first heard the idea that became the holodeck. So that's more than likely the the episode, you know, the one. I, I have to watch that and see if maybe it spurs any uh, jogs any memories or what. But I also remember the first time I ever read anything that sounded vaguely like what would eventually become the internet in real life was in a Star Trek book, and I want to say it was again one of those Star Trek logs, although I could be wrong. Uh-huh. But I remember it being a big deal about. I can't remember which character it was. Might have been Kirk, but I forget where there was like a like an intership, like you know, like a like a forum 
basically, where people went in and posted things. And I remember one of the characters going in to basically check morale. You know, what were people posting on this forum? And, and reading the comments and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. And then, you know, sure enough, here we are. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Once again, Star Trek, you know, predicting things to come. The infranets. But I guess that's uh, that's all I got. It's definitely all we've got for feedback. And uh, yep. so we're going to take a little break, and we will come back with Star Trek number 18? 18. I believe it is number 18. Yes. And a special treat. Treat. Let's go. Ready? From the top. My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like. It's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising poison in the air and water. I can't understand why the price of gas suddenly rises when oil goes up. But takes months to go down long after oil falls. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind the gods who are more vengeful, angry, and dangerous if you don't believe in them. Why can't all these gods just get along? I mean, they're omnipotent and omnipresent. What's the problem? What's the problem? What about the men who say, do as I do? Believe in what I say for your own good, or I'll kill you! I can't get behind that! I can't get behind that! Everybody knows everything about all of us! That's too much knowledge! I can't can't get get behind that. that! using my streets to learn. If you learn to play the drums, you gotta go to a studio, go to a parking lot, for God's sakes! Why are you jeopardizing my life? I can't get behind a student driver! I can't get behind a driver who drives like a student driver! If you're gonna drive an urban assault vehicle, then get off the phone and keep your eyes on the road! Lifetime guarantee? Whose lifetime, not mine? I haven't that much time left. Let's make it yours. Everybody's got a longer life than me! Leaf blowers. Is there anything more futile? Car alarms. Clap off. Clap on. Spam. Size matters. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it no, it does. doesn't. No, yes, it doesn't. Yes, it does. My yes, phone does. rings. Make millions of minutes. It's a computer. Lose inches and hours. Leave me the hell alone. Eat more. Spend less. The colonel is breakdancing. Give me a break. Credit terms arranged. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind so-called singers. They can't carry a tune. Get paid for talking. How easy is that? Well, maybe I could get behind that. Well, I can't. If you have to fix it with a computer, quantized, pitch corrected, nobly inspected, then you can't do it. And I can't get behind that. I can't get behind a fat ass. Yeah. Bill, can you turn around and do one more? Always can do one more. Let's hit it. How many people do you think became engineers based on the Scotty character? Uh, The Milwaukee School of Engineering, uh, a year ago, uh, last uh, February, 
gave me an honorary doctorate in engineering just because of that fact. I have been the model, shall we say, for 50 to 60 percent of all their students because they put it down in their uh, application to the, for the school. And that is a big, big engineering school. As a matter of fact, I hope to send my 15-year-old uh, there. He wants to be a structural engineer, so, you know, and he's a very smart boy. How does that make you feel when you think about that? <laughs> I mean, you have truthfully influenced people to make career paths and so on. I mean, that's pretty well, I don't know. See, the point is that basically we never really did any super engineering things, you know, but uh, for some reason or other, the, uh, the writers really latched on to my character, and I'm not talking about the other characters right now, but they latched on to my character once they found out that James Doohan read technical journals. And I've been reading technical journals ever since I left high school in Sarnia, Ontario. And uh, I educated myself, I suppose, in that way. And uh, I've done, I've had science shows, and even with the CBC, I had a, a live television show that ran for 52 weeks called Space Command. You know, and that was before Star Trek. Nobody in Star Trek ever knew about that at the time, of course. And here I was, out of, strangely enough, hired to play uh, an engineer. All right, welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 25, and we're here for the DC Comics Star Trek part of the show, and uh, here to tell you about this issue, which is issue number 18, it's Scott. Hey, thanks. All right, so this is Star Trek uh, Volume 1, number 18, from DC Comics, the September 1985 issue. Cover on this one by Tom Sutton, who also pencils the interior Really like this cover, actually. It's uh, kind of a cool one. It's Scotty hanging on for his life f to, uh, you know, all these tubes and wires and stuff. And uh, he's being sucked into this disintegration pit. And we see somebody's finger on the button to, like, try to disintegrate Scotty. It's pretty cool. I like the cover. Uh, the writer on this one is Paul Kupperberg. Artist, uh, again, Tom Sutton. And also uh, Ricardo Villagran. Augustin Moss. Mass Moss, I'm not sure how you pronounce that last name, Letter, Michelle Wolfman, Colorist, Mike W. Barr, and uh, Mar Marv Wolfman share uh, co-editor's credits on this one. Story is entitled Rest and Recreation. The story opens to Montgomery Scott, miracle worker, wrapping up a lecture on basic engineering to a group of Starfleet cadets. As he leaves the lecture hall, he is accosted by a group of students who try to ask him personal questions about his shipmates which causes Scotty to, uh, you know, kind of go off on a, in a tizzy about blasted whippersnappers is what he calls them. He runs into his old, old pal Joshua, and I don't think we ever get a last name for this guy. And uh, Joshua is the commander of the star base that Scotty's at. And Joshua asks him, uh, or thanks him rather, for taking time out of his R&R &R to give the lecture. And the two old pals chit-chat, but the conversation quickly turns dark when it becomes apparent that Joshua still holds some bitter resentment towards Starfleet for assigning him to flying a desk instead of uh, commanding a starship after the loss of his first command. The uh, 
two old friends part ways with Joshua saying uh, they should get together later with another old friend of theirs, Bill Nigula, uh, to share uh, drinks later. Scotty is thinking to himself about Joshua's attitude when he spots another cadet kind of lingering in the background. And he starts to fuss the kid out uh, about not wanting to be bothered with personal questions. But it turns out that the cadet is actually enamored of Scott as an engineer and because of his legend. And Scotty, you know, takes a quick liking to the kid. So deep down in the supply area bowels of the station, armed Starfleet men stage a raid and make off with some supply canisters. And uh, they kill everyone on duty except for Nigula who they just knock unconscious. So in the bar lounge of the station, the cadet, who you know we learn his name is Gulder, he tries to engage Scotty in some serious uh, engineering talk, but the Scotsman is only serious about one thing at the moment, alcohol! <laughs> and uh, he tries to loosen the kid up with a few drinks, but Gulder remains fixated on antimatter equations and stuff like that. So He's got Scott, a leg. <laughs> yeah, I think he even makes that reference, doesn't he? Yes, he does. <laughs> so Scotty decides to go visit his buddy Nigula uh, in the supply area, and Galder accompanies him, and they arrive to find an investigation going on. Uh, Nigula uh, tells what little he knows, and it is revealed that the stolen containers held paper towels. <laughs> paper towels? So down in waste disposal, the thieves dump the containers into the pit as uh, one of the men recalibrates the ion flow, whatever that means, and also, you know, to what what purpose? So Scotty, pissed about the attack on his friend, begins an investigation that eventually leads to the discovery that the cargo containers did not, in fact, hold simple paper towels as the manifest listed, but instead held barbit crystals. And according to Scotty, these are the most habit-forming narcotic known to man. <laughs> so Scotty quickly deduces that the waste disposal pit's ion flow has been recalibrated in order to, like, properly process the drug from its raw state. Uh, but the bad guys have mucked it all up, and if Scotty can't stabilize the thing, then the starbase only has seconds to live. So while Gulder, uh, Gulder runs interference, Scotty struggles to save the station. It's down to the wire when one of the thieves gets the drop on our hero and is about to shoot him, but suddenly he is phaser-blasted by persons unseen, and as are other bad guys. So Scotty saves the station with absolutely no time to spare, and as he wipes his brow, his savior reveals himself to be Joshua, the base commander. And at first, Scotty is you know really grateful and everything, but he quickly realizes that something doesn't add up. How is it that Joshua came to be wandering by just now and carrying a phaser set to kill? And so Josh, you know, he confronts Joshua with these, these questions, and Joshua eventually confesses to being in on the whole scheme, and he expresses regret that now he must kill his old buddy, Mr. Scott, for stumbling onto his get-rich-quick-slash-revenge-against-Starfleet scheme. Now I must kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. I regret it. <laughs> But before he can atomize Scotty, Galder tackles him, and the two new pals stand triumphant over a defeated and disgraced Joshua. Aha. <laughs> and so joining us for the discussion of this issue, we have a very special guest. His career highlights include, uh, he began his comics career working in the fanzine The Comic Reader. 
He created Orion, Lord of Atlantis, the Checkmate series, and Tachyon. He wrote the very first comic book miniseries, World of Krypton, in 1979. And a personal favorite highlight for me, he also worked on the online Multipath Adventures of Superman web animation uh, back in 1998. Please welcome to Two True Freaks, Mr. Paul Kupperberg. Speaking, and uh, call me Paul. Oh, hi, Paul. This is Scott hi. from Two True Freaks, and uh, Chris is here as well. Hello. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you how tonight? Are you? Good. Nice to talk to you. Well, good to be talked to. <laughs> That's what we do. That's a dirty job, but... <laughs> we are absolutely thrilled to have you join us tonight for this. I, uh, I, I don't know what you, what, what you know, but, you know, whatever, whatever information you've got is, is fine. Well, I've, uh, I've, I've tried to do a little bit of homework. Um, of course, you know, I'm familiar with your work, um, just having read so many of your stories over the years. And then also I went to, uh, Wikipedia and some other places and actually uncovered some things that, uh, that really surprised me, some, some credits. So, uh, I wanted well, to yeah, touch I, on that a, a bit as well. I think Scott and I both found out that we were like more familiar with stuff you've done over the years that we didn't even know about, you know, right. we discovered in the last Right. Oh, cool. Good. The last couple of days. So that was <laughs> well, really great. cool. So well, feel free to bring it any of it up. So Excellent. You know, I, Excellent. cuz frankly, you know, I don't have a lot to say about Star Trek. I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> well, we figured we figured that might be a possibility. Yeah. You know, we fi- yeah. you know, I mean, I mean a, a yeah. single issue of a comic. You know, well, what? I actually did two. The, right. the Uhura one too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the Uhura one, and 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 I and, and I I wrote a third one that got thrown into inventory years ago, and and I, I have uh, I have like half the script still on on a disc somewhere, but. Um, and then I wrote a, uh, a Star Trek uh, uh, novella, uh, Star Trek SCE. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. I haven't yet read any of those. I think I have one or two in my collection, but I, I haven't actually gotten around to them yet. I've, I'm horribly lapsed in my Star Trek novels reading. I've, I'm yeah. actually trying to read through all the Star Wars novels at the moment, and there's like a million of those, too. So. Right. right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I think I, I did something like the forty-third one in the series, you know. So it's, uh, uh, but but fortunately, I have friends who are good friends who who, are, who do know Star Trek, like Bob Greenberger, um, who you know will look at my stuff and and add Star Trek, you know. So um, that's the way I muddle through Star Trek assignments. <laughs> so. Well, but, we, um, anyway, we do uh, we. We've, I'll be honest with you, we haven't really done a whole lot of this thing before, so we, we might sound a little, uh, a little rusty or a little, uh, doofy. A little doofy, <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, well, um, welcome to my world. So, uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, we do have a few questions, but what we really like <clears throat> to do is we really like, you know, for anybody that joins us, you know, be they celebrity or just a, a fellow geek, to just feel comfortable and and just kind of hang out with us and just talk about you know geeky things rather than a straight up interview because grilling yeah, yeah that, no, that, you you've, yeah you've come to the right place don't worry about it excellent. I've, uh, I've been 
I, I started out as a fanboy in, in, in the late 60s with, uh, you know, Paul Levitt and Tony Isabella and, you know, all those guys. So I was uh, thrilled I'm, to I'm, find I'm, out that you uh, started out with uh, the comic reader. I, I didn't know that about mm-hmm. you, and I... Sadly, I only have a precious few issues of that in my own collection, but any time I chance across an issue of that, I, I never pass up an opportunity to snap them up because I love that. Uh, that was yeah, a great little fanzine. Yeah, I, I have co- – well, I, I naturally have the ones that I worked on, but um, I have copies of a lot of the older ones that go back through the 60s and, and uh, you know, to the early 60s. I even have Xeroxes of the, of, of the first issues. So, oh, wow. But, um yeah. Yeah, no, I love that stuff. It's uh, you know the fanboy geek roots. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so yeah, so yeah. Go ahead, fire away. Uh, I'm I'm good. I I can uh, you know I can I can shoot the fanboy shit. Well, <laughs> real good. So. My sole Star Trek question that I can think of is how do they how do you you know how do they prep you for that? Do you have because don't you have to stay in the sort of DC Star Trek continuity and the overall Star Trek continuity? Were you already a Star Trek fan? I wouldn't say I was a fan. I mean, I watched the original series when it was on the air originally. Um, you know, in the mid '60s, I was about uh-huh. uh, you know 11 years old or so when it went on the air. So you know, I watched it. I, I was so every episode first run um, and um, and loved it. And then watched all of it in reruns for years afterwards. Um, by the time the next generation came around, I had kind of drifted away from that stuff. And, uh-huh. and I, you know, I mean, I saw the movies. You know, I don't think I've seen all of them. You know, frankly, the first movie would make you go, "Well, I think I'm done with that franchise." You know? <laughs> um, but um, would it shock uh, you if I told you that that's my favorite favorite <laughs> movie of the No, 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 it, it wouldn't. <laughs> uh, you know what? Anything is somebody's favorite. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there is somebody out there who goes, "No, Heaven's Gate, that that was good." <laughs> so you know, um, you know, it, it's fine, and, and you know, it, 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 please, everybody, feel free to like what you like, and don't worry about my opinion. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, so and and oddly, for someone who is in the comic book business, um, I don't watch a lot of science fiction and horror and things like that. I have um um I actually only saw Alien because John Byrne forced me to to sit through it. Um <laughs> and and I could hardly wait for it to end because I was just so bored. Um uh you know, I, I don't see I, I've never seen a, a Predator movie. You know, I, I just I'm not uh-huh. terribly interested in that stuff. I, I think because I'm a writer, you know, I know when the boogeyman is going to jump out of the closet. Um, so this stuff doesn't shock me and it doesn't surprise me and it doesn't, you know, it just kind of like, yeah, 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 what's next? Where's some character? Where's some depth? You know, I know I'm silly that way. I, I was, <laughs> I was an English literature major in the 1970s. It's, you know, it, it, it's hard not to get pretentious. Now, now what um, kind of movies do you like? Um, I like, a, I like a lot of different movies. Um, one of my favorite movies is, is, uh, is, a. Uh, Something made about 1970 by Sidney Lumet called Bye Bye Braverman. It's a George Siegel movie, and it's about four friends who are, are going to Braverman's funeral on a Sunday uh, afternoon and get lost. And it's just following them around Brooklyn and, and New York while they, um, you know, while they try to get to Braverman's funeral. Um, uh, 
recently, what have I seen that I liked? I liked uh, City Island. Um, you know, on the other hand, I, I loved Iron Man. Um, you know, the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve is one of my favorite movies. Uh, amen um, there. You know, um, so, you know, I, I have a wide variety. But again, I, I don't go a lot for the genre stuff. It just, again, it, it, it uh-huh. doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really grab me. So. Well, so much of the genre stuff in recent years, I think, has been lackluster anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when I do see it, I'm usually uh, I'm usually disappointed. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of disagree with that statement of of nowadays because I think... It's always sucked. It's, yeah, I think it's <laughs> like a lot of that stuff. Yeah, there's always like this 85 to 95% suck rate. Oh. Yes, with with true, the genre yeah. stuff, and there's five percent of excellent, wonderful. Yes, you know, uh, you know, stuff. Sturgeon's law is true of everything. Ninety percent of everything is crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? That's true. I strongly it's believe in, in that law. Yes. Yeah, and um, you know, I know there's good. I know there's good stuff in that genre, and and you know, and that's great. Um, you know, it's just somebody else can watch it. You know. <laughs> 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 but, yeah. On the other hand. You know, when it comes time to write it, you know, I'm good. I, I know it. I, I mean, you know, I grew up, um, you know, watching all that stuff on TV and, 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 you know, reading. I mean, you know, I've got a, I'm pretty well read in, in, in classic science fiction, you know, going back from the, into the 20s and 30s and, you know, all the great stuff, the, the, the Alfred Bester and Asimov and, you know, uh-huh. through the Dangerous Visions and Harlan Ellison and all that stuff, you know. I read lots of science fiction through the, through the, the 70s and 80s um, until I ran out of science fiction to read. But, um, you know, so I, I know the stuff. I just, um, you know. Oh, yeah, well, just just glancing at, and I'm sure it's, I'm looking at the comic book database entry of of your credits, so it's it's like a Wikipedia, so it's probably incomplete and fairly inaccurate, but it looks like you've pretty much worked across just about any kind of genre you can think of. Yeah. It's at one point or another, yeah. and that's just in comics. Yeah, um, I guess, and I guess if you count Terra Man and Superman, I've even done westerns, you know. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've, I've yeah, I've been real lucky. I've been able to work in a lot of different formats and a lot of different genres, and you know, lots of different things over the years. Well, speaking of formats, um, something that I definitely wanted to make a point to, to discuss with you. Um, while we had you was I was shocked and very happy to discover that you uh, had a hand in the multi-path adventures of Superman. I was a huge fan of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Is that still around anywhere? Because I've scoured the Internet and can't seem to find where that's still available. Yeah. You know, I I actually never saw it fully produced because I have a Macintosh. Um, uh. but, um, you know, and, and I never got a copy of my, um, of my, uh, um, uh, serial on, you know, from anybody. So, um, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. It was the closest to, you know, uh, animation I've ever come to, but, um, but it was interesting. It was fun. Did you do the whole series? Were you the writer no, on the I whole? No, I just did, no, I did one, you know, I think there were like 11... I think 
Yeah, I think mine was the last one. There were like 11 uh, serials, uh, six or seven episodes apiece. I'm trying to remember um, how it ended because that, that's this. We're going back what about ten years or better on this like now? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to remember how what the last chapter was, but uh, mine. Uh, I did a Bizarro one. That's right. That yeah. Yeah. That, and you know, I'm not the biggest Bizarro fan in the world, but that was actually a really good interpretation of him, and I liked their their fight in the and everything. It's it's all kind of vague in my head, but I'm. I was really a huge fan of that because at oh, that cool. time my my oldest boy he was uh, two or three years old and that was one of his earliest gateways into Superman is every week or however often that show came out right. I think it was weekly you know okay, yeah you know father and son would sit down in front of the computer and download the new episode and this was back in like. The dial-up days, so it took yeah. forever to download yeah. and all. But we anticipated that show so much and really, really oh, enjoyed cool. it. Cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know that and uh, that and He-Man will, uh, you know, will, will, will seal my fame. Before we let you off the hook tonight, I was also going to uh, invite you to come back sometime and join us for another show that uh, comes out under our banner called Back to the Bins, because my co-host on that show, Michael Bailey, is a huge uh, Masters of the Universe fan, and I know that he would want to talk to you about your work on uh, on that book. So, sure, you are invited sure. to that back for that anytime. Real quick, uh, a question I, I did have uh, specifically about this Star Trek story, though. I was just curious, um, was it your personal choice to make this story about Scotty, or was it more of an assignment, or how did this whole story come about? Um, I am guessing because, uh, what are we looking at here, 1984? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh I probably picked it. I, I like working with, you know, like secondary characters and stuff. It, it, it's, uh, you know, you can do a lot more because nobody's looking as close. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, um, and this was a fill-in. Was there somebody doing the title regularly in those days? Yeah, Mike, regular Mike Barr was the writer. Okay. And uh, Sutton and so, Villagran were the artists. Now, they were still the artists on this particular right. issue, but I know that your second story, the Uhura story, I'm, I want to say that was Carmine Infantino. That, on that one, right, yeah. Come to think, I, yes, I think it was, yeah. And I think that was a straight fill-in issue. Because, right, this you know, was too, I think. I, I'm not sure. Well, I know as far as... You know the writing credits. It was definitely a fill-in because you yeah. you know you were stepping in where it was regular. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Mike Barr. Right yeah, yeah. Well, the all the, 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 co the, the co-editors of the of the issue were Mike Barr and, and Marv right. Mm -hmm. Um So uh, yeah, it was probably. I, I mean, I know Mike wrote the book in those days. So uh, um, yeah, I didn't remember if it had if it was if the book was in continuity or if it was separate stories, but it was, it was a continuity thing. It was in continuity, but at this point, um, we did get a string. I forget how long the streak went for, but there was a, they, we had just come off of a major multi-part storyline where they had gone to the mirror universe and all. And then right. there was okay. a, a right. series of at least three, um, they were kind of character spotlights because the, the prior issue was an Ahura story. Right, it was Ohura and Sulu. Yeah. 
right. then there was your story, and then the ne- the one that we'll talk about next month is actually written by uh, Walter Koenig himself, and that was a, okay. a Chekhov story. And then beyond that, I, yeah. I can't remember if they went back to episodic or not. I, I'm yeah. drawing a blank. I, my guess would be after that long storyline, it was, you know, Mike was taking a break. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know. And 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 that would explain the fill-ins, um, uh, you know, and, and the individual things. And they may have even said to me, it's like, you know, all right, they've just come off a major, you know, a major thing, um, you know, and I and I said, well, I'll do a Scotty story. And they go, well, okay, he'd be, you know, have an R&R at so-and-so, you know, right. at, uh, wherever, you know. I usually uh, make up a, a bunch of funny syllables and then put a Roman numeral after it. Put a number after you know. it, Yeah. <laughs> Well, there was, well, it was also useful in Green Lantern, by the way. Too. Well, I thought I thought your techno babble at the beginning from Scotty was was very good, was especially good. For uh, <laughs> it, it's funny. I think Scott, you and I were talking about Star Trek techno. Yeah, the, the, how the how the techno babble in Star Trek sort of stepped up in the next generation and stopped making as much sense. Right? Yeah. Well, but yours didn't really make, make sense, but it sounded like it made sense. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I'm looking at it here. I mean, I, I had to go back and, you know, I had to find this issue and and um, and and read it because I had no recollection whatsoever what the story was. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you know, it's 25 years ago and... Um, yeah, um, when you see all this stuff you've done, I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, you know, I... I, I at, there's um, a, a website, uh, the DC Database... Um, which is that the one you're using? Uh, Mike's Mike's Amazing World. Yeah, we plug yeah. that site all the okay. time. Yeah, we love Mike, that site. I love Mike's Amazing World. It's great. It's yeah, great. that guy's awesome. And, I, and and Paul Levitt, who just did this giant book about the history of DC Comics for for Tash and Books. Um, it's the 75th anniversary thing. Uh, it's a beautiful book. I, I've seen you know xeroxes of, of of the pages. Um, uh, he he was mining. You know, he was. He found that they have this this database, and he said to me, "Oh, by the way, did you know you're the 18th most prolific writer in the history of DC Comics?" Wow! And I went, "Holy shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool!" You know, by number of stories, I am I am the 18th most prolific writer in, in DC. I mean, you know, Bob Kaniger has 30,000 stories, and I have about 500. I you know, think uh, I think one. Witty. Uh, Wiki, if I remember right, I th- well, maybe it's not on. I'm looking real quick, and I'm not, not seeing it here. Is, yeah. is oh, that no, a real He really has thirty thousand stories. Yeah, it was like twenty nine thousand nine hundred eighty five wow. or something wow. like that. You know. No, um, no. Oh well, Bob was just you know, Bob was just a machine. I mean, he would you know, where did one story end and the next one start? You know, it, it just. Uh, he was, and if he ran out of plot before he ran out of pages, he'd have the dinosaurs come bursting through the earth, and you know they'd fight them until the issue was ended. He was great. He was brilliant. He was insane, and he was great. I loved him. I mean, I loved him as a writer, and I and and you know just I I was very fortunate to get into DC in the uh, you know the early seven early and mid seventies, and all these guys that grew up reading um, were still working there, and I got to work with a lot of like. I didn't remember that I that Tom Sutton had run the Star Trek, and that's so cool. I got to I had worked with Tom Sutton. That's another great name to add to the list. Uh huh. So, 
I'm, what I like about these databases that are popping up, like especially Mike's Amazing World and, and things like that and the, you know, the comic book database, is that you finally have somewhere where you can just go and click on somebody's name yeah. and, and look over their entire history. Mm-hmm. And while yeah. I was doing that... But you can also contribute to it when, there's, if, when you have oh, something right. that's missing from it. I love right. that, too. But I mean, you know, oh, yeah. being able to look over that list and go, "Oh my God, I didn't know that so and so wrote or drew or inked or whatever or such and such story." I love that story, and and as I was looking at your credits, Paul, I kept doing that over and over again, going, "Oh my God, I didn't know he wrote that." That's great. I love that issue, and there's so many stories that Here's you have written. Numbers, the odds oh, yeah. my favor. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Scott and I have story. Uh, Scott and I were looking through it, and then all of a sudden, we were remembering. You know, we went to high school together in Northern New York, and uh, and you know, we can remember picking up all those Radio Shack. Freebies. Yes, and, yes, and and I've yes. always been fascinated by giveaway comics and and yes, emotional comics, comics and stuff yeah. like that, and. And like seeing like a bunch of the ones that you've done, and it's like, oh man, those are all ones that I remember. <laughs> yeah, remember. I even got to edit those at DC. So yeah, there was a point when I was an editor at DC. I was working in um, in 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 the. Uh, I worked in a lot of different departments, but at one point, I was one of the things I was doing was custom comics, um, editing them for you know everything from Claritin to. Um, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, video games, all kinds of stuff. Superman meets the uh, the motorsports champions. Is a, That's is right. A, yeah, I love that one. Oh, I, man, that was, that was a great... We turned that comic around in, 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 in under 21 days, from start to finish, from, from script to final art to color, in 21 days. Wow. Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan was the penciler. Um, Chuck Dixon wrote it. Chuck can write, you know, Chuck can just write a million pages in about an hour. So, I, I love so that, Chuck that Dixon. Okay. Not one of his <laughs> best efforts, I would say. There but... was not a lot you could do. Yeah, right, um, right. We were we were hampered by the fact that the whole concept was stupid. And you um, had 21 hours. Yeah, and we had 21 days to do it. So 21 days. We, we yeah. got we got Paul Ryan who who knocked himself out and, and turned around did a beautiful job. Love Paul and then Ryan. We had, yeah. And then we had the, the, my forever, you know, favorite superhero in the comic, Tom Palmer, who inked it. Yes. And I only found out afterwards that he was inking it holding a rag to his eye because it had a weeping eye infection. But he, he didn't tell me that. He Good just continued Lord. inking the book at like, you know, a pace of about four pages a day. Um, you know, to get the job done because he'd said he'd get the job done. Well, you talk about another machine. That's that's to my mind. That's uh, yeah. Tom Palmer and and Chris and I are huge Tom Palmer fans because well, we're the, just getting into those Star yeah. Wars comics yeah. that, he, that he inked on the on the first Monday of every month. We Simon do um, Star Wars monthly Mondays, and we're running through the Marvel comics Star Wars, and we're right in that era where it's Simonson yeah. and Palmer on Star Wars, and oh my god, you talk about gorgeous. Oh, Tom is just. Tom is one of the tops of, in, in, I mean, you know, as an inker, he's just incredible. Uh, and, you know, everybody who knows him um, just knows him to be one of the best people. You know, he's just one of the 
nicest people around. That's Absolutely. It, you know? um, but um, but uh, and I also did the Doris Day and uh, the Doris Day Animal League. I don't know if you, you guys caught that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> Superman, that, but Superman, I'll be on the look on uh, for it now. You know, Superman for the animals, written by Mark Miller. Oh wow! I don't think I have that particular. I've I've seen it around, but I don't think I own that. And I do have a, a real fondness for um, both promotional and just plain wacky comics. So that's one yeah. I'll have to I'll have to make a yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. My favorite my favorite wacky giveaway comic, and I don't know if you have one of these, Scott. They they had them in one of our social studies. It was superheroes of macroeconomics. I still have that somewhere, I believe. Yeah. And it was, and it's definitely from a '60s semi-Marxisty. I I just remember two of the characters were Marxist, and there was a capitalist character, you know, a, a superhero. I don't know. The capitalist character may not have actually been the good guy. I have to dig it out. <laughs> I remember. It was that. definitely <laughs> a, like a, a, a '60s '70s. So it had a '60s '70s underground feel to it, and. There were just stacks of them in the back of our social studies class. I don't know how they got there. Or my, my favorite promotional comics are still the religious giveaway tracks. You know, I, I, I have one. That, yeah, I have one down, down in my office. Uh, you know, propped up on a shelf that says "Be kind to the Jews." And, you know, <laughs> That's <laughs> nice. So That's few right. people, so few people ever say that out loud. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just something I thought I had to own. But when you continue reading it, it probably is something like because they're just biding their time here on Earth till they go to hell. Yeah. Oh yeah, time. pretty much. You know, it's yeah. like uh, <laughs> listen. You know, we, we, there's that whole Old Testament connection. You know, yeah. kind of like the Old Testament. If it wasn't for the Hebrews, hey, you know, we wouldn't have it. But you know, hey, when comes the rapture? It's so goodbye. funny. It's so funny you mentioned that because I just got at the the comic shop that I go to. Somebody had brought in, and you know the the chick tracks. Yeah, yeah, this is one of them. What you're talking about, yeah. Oh, sure. This this was his full size. It was on a Christian Spire label. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You had the Crusaders. Yes, I I, I don't think I have a Crusaders one. I have one about a a monk named Albert or Alberto. Alberto, that's the exact one that I'm holding. It's beautifully illustrated, beautiful cover. It's one of the most frightening, hateful crazy oh, sure. it's sure. you know total anti i i oh listen I, you know if you were a reasonable human being you wouldn't be publishing comic books about religion right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey that's one of the smartest things i've heard on <laughs> now, there's, there's a lot of things that you know can if you start it with the sentence if you were a reasonable human being you wouldn't be and you know, living in the woods and figuring out ways to bomb people, you know, yeah, all that kind of crap. It it it, it goes for tea party. It goes for you know, it, I, it goes I, for, I, for religious tracks. You it's, need to turn that into a secondary career because if you know, if if Jeff Foxworthy can do the, you might be a redneck. If I think you're onto <laughs> something with yours. I, it could very well be. I'm very, I'm very glad that they do make the comics because man, they entertain the hell out of me. <laughs> oh, I love this stuff. I love I, I love I love cheesy comics. I, and um, you know, cheesy comics are fun comics. And uh, um, you know, my God, growing up in the 1960s when all these little kind of 
weird independent publishers were trying to do things like Fat Man the Flying Saucer by C.C. Beck. Oh, yeah. You know? uh-huh. I mean, you know, it, this was a golden age of, of really crappy comics. There was a guy named Stanley something who did these <laughs> horror comics, these horror magazines that were, you know, like the Warren magazines, only if the Warren magazines truly sucked. Right, right. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, so there was these. It was it was a great time, and you know there were there were these guys working like Paul Reinman and and you know I mean uh, Sal Trapani. You know they were they were just wonderfully bad. I mean I love the stuff. I still have you know Paul Reinman did all the Mighty Crusader stuff or Archie and the superhero stuff in the sixties. Yeah, you know I'm just thinking there really isn't any there really in the in the sort of new comic world there isn't that schlocky underbelly anymore that there used There's to no be. There's no room for it. Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I, but, well, it's not that there's no room for it. Back in the 1960s, it didn't matter. You uh-huh. know, it didn't matter if Paul Reinman or Dick Ayers drew it or Kurt Swan right. or Neil Adams. I mean, you know, the, the buyers didn't know the difference. The buyers were, were you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah, and you, right. could, and, and you had no cho- uh, choice. If you saw a horror comic there, it was a yeah. horror comic, and you grabbed it. You were fascinated by it. You might right. not be able to ever see it again, or you might right. not. Yeah, and, you know, truly, you know, where is is a eleven year old making a distinction between an EC horror comic or a Charlton horror comic? Mm-hmm. You know, no. I just realized I, I I I feel like I was remiss, Paul. That uh, we we never really asked you what are your origins as a comic book fan? How, how did you basically uh, discover oh, comics well, and was, get into comics as a kid or whatever? I I you know I, I, there's no time in my life where I don't remember comics being in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was uh, born in Brooklyn, um, in in, uh, in in East New York, and uh, kind of had this, you know, it's very nuclear family-ish because everybody lived within walking distance, you know, within two blocks of each other, the whole family. And I had an uncle who was only ten years older than me, and I had a brother who's two years older than me. Is that Alan? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so he was so you know, comics were always around, and I just started reading them I guess before I could read and by the time I could read they were just there um and um I always read them I didn't you know kind of know I didn't know about collecting or fandom or anything until I got into um uh junior high and met Paul Levitt who was um uh the other kid in school who read comics and uh we we became friends and started you know hanging out and through Paul, I found out about you know fandom and you know we started getting fan scenes and 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 uh, you know getting involved in that and pretty soon started our own um called et cetera, which was a news fanzine that was to take the place of another news fanzine that was going under um and uh pretty soon we Merge the the previous the guy who had done the comic reader, which was the first and original comic fanzine, you know, regular, regularly published comic fanzine, um, came to us and said, you know, you you can take over the comic reader, and uh, by taking over the comic reader, it meant he handed us this was Mark Hannerfeld, he handed us a shoebox full of uh, money and uh, index cards with names and addresses of subscribers on it. Um, and that was pretty much how you passed the hat of fanzines in those days. You know. So uh, we took that over, and we uh, that got built up into you know something fairly large. We were uh, publishing out of Paul's basement 
uh, selling about 5,000 copies a month wow. of uh, the comic reader. And um, uh, Paul eventually started working for, for Joe Orlando. He, uh, he got a job as a summer fill-in when Mike Fleischer was going on vacation. It was Joe Orlando's assistant at the time. Mike never came back from vacation, and Paul never left the, <laughs> his temporary job until about uh, until sometime last year, when they when they retired him. You know, all right, you finally you have to go. It's been long enough. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, um, and I, you know, I, again, I was just always doing this stuff. I, I always wanted to be a writer. Was always writing. You know. And started um, in college. I started, um, you know, using what little contacts I had made through the fanzine days to, uh, you know, send my work around. And eventually, um, Charlton Comics bought my bought stories from me. And uh, that was in 1975. And I've been uh, writing ever since. I've been that and. Uh, you know, writing, writing, and, and uh, spent a long time as an editor at DC. What uh, um, what titles did you work on at uh, at Charlton? Uh, it was horror stories, you know, um, things in scary tales, and you know, Baron Werewolf's House of Three D Waxy Horrors, whatever they were, <laughs> you know, it was those types of things. Um, I think I, I told like five or six stories to them. Um, although Steve Ditko drew one of them, so that was like really oh wow, cool. that's neat. Yeah, yeah. 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 I was uh, um, lamenting to Chris here uh, a while back. I can't remember if we did this on the air or if we were just kind of, you know, just bullshitting around just the two of us, but one of my regrets from my childhood is that, you know, that we used to buy our comics at a cigar store in sure. Carthage, New York. And mm-hmm. we can remember there was a section that was kind of removed from the the regular spinner rack comics where all the Charlton comics were. Yeah, it was in with the ma- they were in with the magazines and the Warren yeah. stuff. And okay. you know, the Warren magazines and the Warren comics and, and the we, Charltons would be over there. And don't you agree, Chris, that we we just kind of grew up with kind of like a natural prejudice towards we're them for snobs. some? Yeah, we were, and, and now we regret it. I do regret <laughs> it well, because Charlton, yeah, Charlton was in those days was kind of the um, well, we've got these printing presses, we've got to keep them busy. Yeah, comic book publisher, right? Um, well, and now, they weren't they like the printing presses from like a cereal a box, cereal box yes. company or something? So that's why the colors were always so, like, <laughs> well, they were. Uh, yeah, I, they may have. They may very well have been. I mean, they were four color presses. Um, uh, so you know, I don't know what they had printed before that. But uh, these guys, you know, the guys who started it were were um, um, copyright infringers who had done jail time for for stealing, <laughs> uh, you know, for, for publishing other people's music. You know, uh, uh, doing uh, m- m- uh, music magazines and publishing without permission. Um, and um, uh, they started this company, and they had their own printing presses. They had their own distribution. They had their own trucks. Um, the the rumor is they were mobbed up like crazy, um, but they also had a very successful music publishing, music magazine publishing thing. You know, hit parade kind of things where they magazines that published the lyrics of, of popular songs. And um, but they had these presses they needed to keep going, and comics were cheap. When I started writing for them in nineteen. 19- 55, at 1975, they were still paying the same $5 a page for a script as they were paying in 1955. Jeez. Yeah. Um, however, that being said, 
Uh, my first story was a five-pager. It uh, appeared in Scary Tales number three, and it was drawn by Mike Zeck, who was oh, uh, yeah. doing some real early work himself. And um, but that was the best twenty-five bucks I had ever earned. <laughs> you know, it was like it was the first story I ever sold, and it was you know it was great. I you know I still don't you know it, it, it's funny you know it's like it, you shouldn't you should never write for the money you know like doesn't matter what you're getting paid do your best you know turn in the script for the check right never right write for the money you know um, so you know it didn't really matter. It was uh, it was just cool. I had finally you know broken in and told the story. <laughs> well, I'm a I'm a big fan today of uh, of the Charltons, but it's it's so I don't know if ironic's the right word, but you know for years I would dig through quarter boxes and fifty cent boxes and you know Charlton 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 and pass them up, you know, stick my nose in the air. Now I want that stuff and can't find it anywhere on the cheap, yeah. and it's yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's gotten, it, it's gotten uh, you know, it, it's gotten hot. You know, people ran out of things to collect. I guess. <laughs> no, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff. There's um, you know, Don Newton did a ton of beautiful stuff for for, for Charlton. You know, his run on Phantom was just awesome. You know, mm -hmm. great work. Um, Ditko did a ton of stuff for them, and and I love. I mean, Pat Boyette. I mean, geez, how how great was he? You know, he did all his work for them, practically. Um, you know, um, a lot of really great guys. Tom Sutton did a ton of work for them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I just, I love those guys. I well, yeah. They were, they were great artists, and, it, you know. It sounds it was, like you know, it was sort of the Roger Corman of yeah. of uh, yeah. comics. Yeah. It was, yeah, we don't pay you much, but you we don't expect much, and we'll leave you alone. You know. Is that where you met John Byrne? Um, no, John and I met at a comic convention. Um, we think it must have been 1972 or three. It was one of the Phil Suling New York Comic Cons. Um, oh wow! Yeah, no, I'm that old. Um, you know, that's uh, funny you say that though, Paul, because you're really not that old. Because Chris and I were both shocked when, because uh, I, I do believe that Wikipedia gives your birth date and everything. And we were like, yeah, no, I'm he's not that old. Yeah, I mean, you know, most, mo you know, when when I consider comic creators who, now I don't want to make you feel old, but you know, that I read as a kid, I'm expecting them to be in their 60s or 70s. Carmine Infantino. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, Stan Lee and these guys. So, you know, you're only 55, dude. That's yeah. not that and, much older than us, honestly. <laughs> so, not at this point. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, John and I, well, thank you for that. Um, it makes an old man feel good. <laughs> um, I, um, John and I, we were, we both remember the meeting. Um, I walked into one of the ballrooms in the hotel um, that the, the, the convention was at. And I was just wandering around. It was after hours. And, and um, there was nobody in there except for about half a dozen guys. There was a piano up in the room, and they were sitting around the piano. Nobody was playing it, but they were sitting around the piano, and they were singing television theme songs. And I realized, you know, I got closer, and I knew a couple of people involved, and... Uh, um, it was a kind of, you know, name that tune thing with, with TV theme songs. And, you know, the idea was to find obscure TV themes and try to stump the band. So, um, you know, eventually John and I were the, were the last men standing and we bonded over that. 
we have been we have been friends ever since. Excellent. Scott and I used to play TV theme song. <laughs> Name the TV theme song. Yeah, like back in high school. Yeah, we did. Well, I I finally stumped him on on a show called Hank. Ooh, yeah, you would have me on that one. I don't think I've ever even heard of that. <laughs> yeah, summer replacement, thirteen episodes about a guy who, who, uh, in order to get his college degree without paying for it, illegally monitor, you know, against the rule, monitors classes in disguise, and um, and uh, uh, the dean is, you know, bent on stopping him. But for some reason, the theme song stuck in my head, and it's- and I was. And, and, it's somewhere on YouTube now. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't get away with that sort of stuff these days because yeah. somebody have their iPhone yeah. down under their under the table and be just like, "Yep." And my roommate, his iPhone. If you have somebody singing a song or playing a song and you don't know what that song is, you can aim your iPhone yes. at it now and yeah. it'll tell you what it is. And oh who my God. It. Yeah. yeah. No. 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 We we had honor in those days. <laughs> Damn it! This was important. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when um, uh, fanzines and that so, that whole culture, and there were a lot of people from the 60s up until the 80s, up until the internet, that there was this whole subculture of do-it-yourself publishers and people who would it's, do it's art still out there. to each there's, other. There's still apps. Mm-hmm. Well, you it's know, all translated still- sort of into the internet these days, but that was a, the forerunner, I think, of the, oh, I think that's sort of yeah. one of the spines that the internet grew off of it was the ideas of, of those people, of the people who went out, at, you know, blogs these days. Oh, sure. Blogs are oh, basically a, a fanzine. But now well, it's so much easier to do it, so now a lot more people oh, do it. Absolutely. No, we, um, I mean, I used to blog, and it's still running. It's something called Kappa Alpha, which is a, a, an APA, an amateur press alliance. And uh, you know, every month you do a certain number, you know, you do your fanzine, uh-huh. and you send it to a guy called the Central Mailer who collates, you know, there's 50 members in, in, in Kappa Alpha. So you send 50 copies. He makes 50 copies of, you know, one copy of everything that's submitted each month and then sends it out to the individual members. And that's been going on since the 1960s. I was a member of it in the 70s and the 80s. Um, you know, so that's, but that's still going on. You know, there's still like the, but it's, it's a bunch of guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Right, you know, right. I still have my Mimeo machine and I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, I did fanzines on, on Mimeograph. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know that purple stuff that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. that the teacher did the test on? Yeah, that so spelled really do, good. You know, I would type it on stent, type and draw on stencils and, and, uh, you know, and run it off at my friend's house. He, you know, I had friends who had, uh, Mimeo machines. Well, when I was a kid, my father had a friend who worked at the paper mill, and he would bring me back Star Trek fanzine stuff that was mimeographed or printed in very small runs when I was a little little kid because I was a big, oh, your son likes Star Trek? Here, give him this. And yeah. uh, I think that might have been what, what made my, fa- you know, started my fascination with that because, you know, I, I love the idea of people, you know, there's people who sort of complain about not having access to something, and then there's people who sort of do something about it and start making, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that was the, that was the idea of the you know of the, of the app is was you know you you could be the only person in your whole 
state who read comics that you knew of, you know? Right. Um, so, uh, but through these, you connected with, with mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in the early 70s when we were doing the Comic Reader, uh, I, I, I had friends all over the country. I had friends all over the world. I mean, I, I knew, you know, people in, in I, I had buddies in, in, in England and, and Germany and France and, and, you know, when 2000, uh, 2000 AD started coming out, you know, friends were mailing us copies. So, you know, I was seeing it from the start. It was just, um, um, you know, it, it was a very different world. It wasn't, and, and there was no room for the anonymity, which I think is, you know, really the big problem. There's too many people who get to hide behind uh, the yeah. internet. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's easy to have an opinion when nobody knows who you are. Well, yeah, that 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 anonymity is like a, is like the big double-edged sword of of the internet because you have things like um, oh what that that group anonymous yeah. that that can play havoc with say Scientology, which in a way I like that, but in a, in another way it's scary because they can sort of play havoc with whoever they want yeah. on a whim, and nobody knows, you know. And, it's, and I'm- and I'm fine, you know, mess with whoever you want, but, you know, put your name on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, have the, have the courage of your convictions. You know, any, 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 any coward can, you know, can, can snipe at you from behind, you know, behind a wall. Yep. <laughs> Stand out there. Let me see who you are, and then, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I completely I, agree with that. I mean, my name is on everything that's pub- that I publish. Yeah. So I expect the same courtesy from you. Speaking of publishing, I'm dying to know more about uh, JSA Ragnarok. What can you tell us about this? Oh, my poor novel. Yeah. Um, I was um, I was uh, hired by um, DC and 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 iBooks, Byron Price's iBooks, to write. Um, uh, uh, a JSA trilogy. Um, uh, Jeff Johns did a kind of a rough plot um, directional thing, which I turned into, you know, a trilogy. And um, and I wrote the first novel, which is Ragnarok, which is JSA, and it's set uh, partially in current day and partially in the 1940s, just after um, um, uh, uh, VE Day. And um, uh, now, it, it, would this it, be tied in with the whole last days of the JSA where they got stuck in Ragnarok? Oh, that excellent, excellent, yeah. 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 Um, they, um, um, yeah, I mean, with I, I, I use that, although there is a, um, uh, you know, I, I make some changes, you know, for the sake of the novel, uh-huh. you know, but, um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it, goes to that event and um you know it got written it was edited it was um it was it was uh, i i have a pdf of the ready for you know to be sent to the printer of the book and the um the weekend that i was um sitting down to power through the the last bit of the writing um i read on the internet that uh byron price publisher of ibooks was uh, killed in an auto accident um, oh. in, in Long Island. Um, he was going to synagogue on Saturday driving his Mercedes-Benz. I think he was asking for it. 
Um, <laughs> but um, he, um, and I was like, oh shit, you know, it's like, now, uh, yeah, don't get me wrong, I've known, I've known Byron since the 70s, and, and it was a shock and a terrible, and I like Byron, he's a good guy. Um, uh, but, you know, as, as a writer sitting there about to finish a novel, to see that your publisher has just died, it's like, yeah. Oh well, that's sixty thousand words that I'm going to eat, isn't it? Um, but um, you know, they said, "Go ahead, finish the book. We're still going to publish it." And you know, so we went ahead and the whole thing. And literally the week it was to go to press, they declared bankruptcy and closed the door. Oh. Um, the novel has since been tied up for a long time. It's tied up in the bankruptcy proceedings, following you know the estate and everything and, and bankruptcy. And the new publisher is, um, the way it works is very bizarre. DC owns the characters and the story, but the publisher, the guy who bought what, you know, what, what was left of iBooks, including rights to things that were to be published, owns the book itself. Right. So like a licensee or something. Right. So they can't, you know, they can't publish it. Unless DC agrees, and DC won't let them publish it unless you know, yada yada. So um, essentially, DC wants them to pay for it, and they went, "No, oh, but these guys already paid for it." I'm like, "Nah, you're missing the point." You know, but um, uh, so it's just hung up there. It's just there in limbo. It is already the cover was uh, was was done. It's a lovely cover using Alex Ross uh, images. Oh wow. Um, yeah, Mr. Terrific and uh, the other guy on it. The, the classic Mr. Terrific or the or the new? No, Mr. no, no, the new, um, the current guy. Yeah. Um, That's why I've always been a fan of do-it-yourself art. <laughs> yeah. You, ne- you never get something put, you know, put up on the shelf unless you want to put it up. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff out there that probably like. Belong <laughs> belongs up on the shelf, but it, it, you know the the mind boggles at how much like good stuff there probably is out there that nobody will ever see because of copyright and weird financial. Yeah, it is. It's um, it, it it's um, you know, it's all tied up in legal stuff, and, yeah. and you know, there there are uh, I was going to say a lot of fans, but there's probably six of them. Who would really like to see that book published? I would. I'm one of them. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, we, all right. We're good now. You know. Also, under our our banner, we we do a show called Tales of the Justice Society of America, and this is right up our alley. I, this sounds like something I would love to read. So yeah, I'm I'm personally invested in seeing it getting published. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> let's let's start a movement. Um. Yeah, I'd love to see it published. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, I haven't looked at it in a while and, and, you know, having written it five years ago, I may decide, boy, this is really bad. But, um, you know, you write something, you spend a lot of time, you like to see it published. Absolutely. Well, before we let you go, Paul, do you have, uh, anything that, uh, you, you want to pimp? Any, anything currently going on? Oh, sure. Um, I am currently uh, writing for uh, uh, Archie Comics, and uh, I am the writer of the um, uh, Life with Archie, the Married Life magazine, 
which is the story, the continuation of the story of uh, Archie Mary's uh, Veronica and Archie Mary's Betty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you're, you're being humble. We know. I mean, like, that's the first time I've heard of Archie has been recently, you know, because, because of that storyline. You know, well, right. that was uh, M- Michael Uslin, uh, um, you know, originated it and wrote the miniseries, and uh, it proved it really did well. So yeah. they decided to continue it. Michael, being you know a Hollywood producer and stuff, really didn't have time to write a monthly, two monthly comics. Um, so um, uh, I had just started writing, you know, regular Archie stories. In fact, the very first script that I sold to them just came out today and. Uh, was published today. It was uh, in, in one of the digests. So, um, but you know, they they brought me in to write the the married stories, and uh, and I've been doing those for uh, I'm actually on my seventh number eight, so my seventh issue of of, well, uh, of of the books. You know that Archie that that was making me think of Scott and I um, are always talking about what is it that that is needed to be done to get kids back, you know, start getting new comics viewers or readers, you know, to get comics back into kids' hands and to make it as appealing as it was when we were kids, you know, and mm-hmm. which is what's basically going to, you know, guarantee, you know, the survival, the eventual survival of the industry is you need to get new you know, if the if the tobacco companies can do it, then the the comic companies <laughs> right. should be able to pull it off. Yes, well, you know, we need to start impregnating the paper and the comics with something. Well, <laughs> nicotine, yeah, put nicotine in the ink, yeah. I don't know. I've I've, first, I've found comic books. I I quit smoking <laughs> cigarettes, but I'm still reading comic books. So there you go. No, me too. Uh, I, I I love comic books. I have been reading them for you know over fifty years. Um, I think they're, you know, just, just, uh, they're, they're, they're a great medium and, 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 and I just, you know, I love reading them. I love doing them. Um, uh, you know, uh, so I, I, yeah, I think they're addictive, but you know, these days there's so many distractions. It's, uh, and, and so few places. I mean, you know, like you say, when you were a kid, you went to the cigar store to buy your comics. Right. When I was a kid. On every Tuesday, they came out on Tuesdays, and um, uh, they we we would after school we would start up um, one of the main stretches of our Brooklyn was Church Avenue, and we'd start up Church Avenue, and there was three candy stores, a, uh, a drugstore, and a newsstand that we would hit to get every comic book because this place would carry the DCs, but not all the Marvels, and this place wouldn't carry Charlton's, and that place had the Walt Disney. And this, so, you know, we had to go to, like, five different places to, to get them. And, um, you know, everywhere you went, you could buy a comic book. If you were in the drugstore and you were bored, you can get your parents to buy you a comic book, you know, no matter where you were. Uh-huh. Nowadays, that's, you know, they're not, they're not available. They're not accessible. It's not what's being published that's the problem. It's where they're being published. You know, it's where they're, they're available. Absolutely. Um, it's all, you know, the reason that Archie it has six, some success these days is because they know, they got into the, into the supermarkets and the, and the chain stores early on with the digest books. They're right at the yeah. checkout, yep. Yeah, and that's brilliant and also, you know, frankly, massively expensive. So to, you know, to have gotten in when they did was great because they, they, they pioneered it. 
Um, you know, so, you know, you can, there's, I mean, there's not enough kids' comics out there, uh, you know, by a, a long stretch, but there's comics out there that kids could could pick up if they were available to kids where kids are, you know. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons I'm a big uh, proponent of uh, Disney having bought Marvel, because I, I can see it already happening that Disney is using the power of the mouse to start to put comics back in places mm-hmm. where kids are, and I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. And, you know, Archie is doing the same thing. I, I walked into Toys R Us uh, the other day. And uh, there's, you know, Life with Archie right there on the stand, you know, right there in Toys R Us. Yep. And, 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 I, and I also got the Superman Red and the Superman Blue um, DC Universe figures. So oh. it was good <laughs> And the Ultraman. The Ultraman, too. You know, I mean, some people argue that there's just video games. There's there's too much other culture to, to divide it up. But then you look at Japan where an, anime, you know, you know, big, thick comic books that are coming out. You know they're publishing yeah, the that parents, stuff, but, but the parents still read those, right? You see, the the, the 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 grown-ups read them, and the grown-ups read them without shame, right? Right. <laughs> well, that just <laughs> you know. means it's possible. When I see that, it, it means possible. it's possible that it could be uh, cultural. You know, it could be part of the culture without having any kind of stigma attached well, to it. Right. You know, it's interesting because I have a 14-year-old son who, um, you know, grew up certainly surrounded by comics. I mean, his his bedroom wall have murals on them painted by John Byrne of superheroes. Oh wow. So he kind of, you know, was he knew from he knew from superheroes and, and comic books. And he reads them casually, you know, it's like a, I'll I'll you know, throw something at him and he'll go you know, he'll read it. Uh, he loves Denny o- Denny O'Neill's question. Uh he's reading he's actually reading the old, you know, Julie Schwartz uh, Green Lantern stuff now and enjoying that. And he'll go looking through my shelves and pick stuff up. But, you know, the new stuff, every time he picks up a mainstream Marvel or DC, he's like, he's got no clue what's going on, and he's got no interest to find out. And Sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, yeah, frankly, me too. Um, you know, I, I know uh, recently, I think Mark Wade said something like, you know, he stopped reading, you know, he's given up reading mainstream comics. And, you know, I kind of understand where he's coming from. This stuff, I'm not the audience anymore. You know, they're they're not writing this stuff for me. I mean, this is, you know, that is exactly, you're making Scott yeah. very happy, right? That now. is exactly, <laughs> yeah. My my co-host on the other shows I've mentioned, Mike Bailey, we we say this uh, all the time. This has become our mantra that you know, well, what you know, it, we, it we happens, were supposed yeah. to grow out of this. <laughs> well, <laughs> we were supposed to grow out of this stuff. <laughs> But we didn't. No, we did so not. So now what do you do with us? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and one of the guys who ran, you know, I mean, Paul, you know, who ran D.C. for all those years, he's another one of those guys who was supposed to grow out of it but didn't. You know, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so where is this stuff going to go? Anyway, oh, and I also wrote an issue of Star Trek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or two. Or two, yeah. Just thought I'd throw that in. (laughs) Paul, you have been an absolute delight, and we have really, really enjoyed having you on and talking to you. You have got to come back and and join us for anyone. I mean, we we have so many comic book-related shows and segments that we do. You are are welcome back anytime uh, to join us. 
pick one and, and I'd be happy to. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. No problem. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. There are survivors from the Odin on this planet. A rescue team struggles to find a shipwrecked crew. These people are facing their death down here. Because they're fugitives on Angel One. We were no harm to anyone. And a disease-infested enterprise can't save them. No one can beam up. This virus is totally out of control here. Now the crew is helpless to stop an execution on Star Trek The Next Generation. back and uh now we're back into the next generation of star trek and um this time i don't know when this originally aired because i didn't do my homework but this one is called angel one where number one gets little number one sassified (laughs) this one uh scott to fill you in on fill you in on the details (laughs) oh thank you this one uh, originally aired the week of January 25th, 1988. Man, just just saying some of the dates on these things just makes me feel like a hundred years old, I swear to God. But <clears throat> Okay, according to the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation companion, this is the skinny on Angel One. Searching for survivors from a freighter that's been missing for seven years, the Enterprise visits the matriarchal planet Angel One and gets a frosty reception from its female leaders. Riker especially seems out of place as Yar and Troy handle the diplomacy, but he finds a more personal way to gain leader Beata's trust. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Survivors are found... You know what? I got to thinking, though, when I watched this one again, did they get interrupted... Before anything actually happened, because I got the kind of impression that Riker may not have. Uh, no, hit that I think they. All. I think they were done when the when uh-huh. they got interrupted. All right, the second time. I think they got interrupted before anything had started. Then they got interrupted after they got like a couple layers of. Cl- I because I, I don't I, know I, though. Could almost see, you could almost see them see like walk into the room and go. Ooh, whoa. I'd I'd like to think, though, that that if if Riker actually did finish the job, that the next scene would have been Beata laying there with, like, you know, 220s, you know, and and Riker wouldn't be nowhere to be found, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) That's just me. (laughs) Anyway, continuing, survivors are found, but they refuse to return. They have taken wives from amongst uh, outcasts on the planet, who don't like the status quo. Dominant women and submissive men. Yeah, I don't like that status quo either. Back aboard Enterprise, crises break out as a virus from a holodeck file ravages the ship, and Starfleet wants a response to a reported Romulan incursion near the neutral zone. The renegade women are discovered and sentenced to death, along with their Federation mates, as enemies of society. Riker wants to intercede and violate the Prime Directive by beaming the outcasts aboard, but with the epidemic in full swing, Dr. Crusher forbids it. Finally, both dilemmas are resolved. The Doctor finds an antidote to the virus, and Riker persuades Beata to forego the death penalty. 
She allows the group instead to be exiled to a remote part of the planet, and the Enterprise warps out to encounter the reported Romulan, act, or excuse me, to counter rather the reported Romulan activity. And that is Angel One. And uh, <clears throat> I, I'm I'm dying to hear your thoughts on this masterpiece of the. First well, the first scenes. thing I notice is like in the first scenes. Number one is always kind of smug. He's always got a sort of smug little grin on his face. And in this one, it's almost like he knows he's going to get laid in it. Because in the beginning, he's just like, <laughs> can't wipe that stupid grin off his face. He's read the script, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's number one's episode this time. <laughs> I get to get my Kirk on in this one. <laughs> I get to stick my rod in her Albany meditation crystal, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Light that sucker up. Light it up. Yeah. <clears throat> um. I thought it was a, an amusing episode in the new genre of apparently Star Trek episodes that we're going to get, which are the light porn um, <laughs> episodes. You know, this has a very similar vibe to the planet of the, the 80s porn stars. Yes. Um, you know, and I don't know. It. I agree with you. This is just sort of a cheesily written. It's 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 you know. I mean, it's got a very '80s costume design in it. You know, with the little little wimpy guys, and you know the big Amazon women with the feathered hair and and <laughs> everything. But it doesn't. I don't know. It's a sort of a, a classic Star Trek theme of equality. Of like, you know, you have to advance beyond your you know thinking that men can or, or can't do this or that. But, you know, Kirk, this is the difference between Kirk and Riker. Kirk would have, having sex with Kirk would have made her completely change her mind. With Riker, she was still like, guys are still stupid, but, you know, you're a little smarter, you know. But she was still, you know, she was still not over her you know, her, um... Yeah, that's true. Prejudices. Kirk would have Kirk would have, uh, pardon my French, fucked the prejudice right out of her. <laughs> Take that as you will. That's what would have happened. That's what okay. Well, you know, they would have invited Kirk to stay. I was trying to think of a so. nicer way to say it. Like, no, I think that's, I think that's minutes. very that's, succinct, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, Riker no, not quite there that yet, shampoo you know. commercial. He put it. Yeah, Riker put an idea into her head. Out of your hair. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Riker put an idea in her head, but he didn't quite, you know, change her mind. You know, uh, Kirk. She, you know, maybe it would have been that's the writing in the '60s. You know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and, and 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 Deanna Troy pissed me off once again in this because. There's like the moment where, you know, at the end, Riker's in a catch-22. He can't do it. He can't violate, you know, he, he, even if he wants to violate the prime directive, he can't. And, you know, so he's making the hard decisions and people are going to die, but there's really, you know, he's up against a wall and there's nothing he can do about it, you know? That's such horseshit, though. That well, point, at, that, at that, at that point, he can't beam him aboard the ship. 
No, I I, I call bullshit. Okay, outside that's, of violent intervention, he can't. Do no, it. that's the part of this. Well, one of many parts that bugs the hell out of me. That that whole argument for the that there's times in this show, I swear to God, that I don't think that they understand the the prime directive. The prime directive says that you can't interfere, like, in the natural progression of the planet, you know, you, in the natural evolution of the way things are going to go. And somehow that gets mutated into this episode that because Ramsey and his people say, well, we don't want to go home, that suddenly Riker's hands are tied and he's like, ah, f- now I can't do anything and we're, we're going to have to solve this diplomat. No! Well, you know, they, they, they explained not- that off because these guys are private citizens. Oh, bullshit. Not- Starfleet. Bullshit. I, I, that's the part that bugs so they're not, me. They're not bound by the prime. If they were Starfleet no. officers, they'd remove them because they were bound by the prime directive. No, that's bullshit, dude. But because these guys are, are, yeah, yeah, I think as a Starfleet officer, you would be able to forcibly remove somebody who's breaking the prime directive. Exactly. Whether they were Starfleet or not, you know. Well, not just if that. If they were of the a Starfleet race, you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're part of, they're part of the Federation. You know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're bound by the same laws that anybody in the Federation, you know, cause that part where Data says that, where Data's like, well, technically, and that's another thing, right? You know, he seems like he's, he, it's, I would be but embarrassed they, they if sideswipe side that, they sideswipe that completely by having the virus. The virus takes away, it's like, okay, it shows that Riker's willing to break the prime directive to, to beam these guys up and remove right. them. Yeah, that's true. But at the same point, his hands are tied because Beverly won't let, Beverly, who's effectively captain, won't let him, you know, has said you can't do it and his loyalty to the, to the ship is superseding even prime directive and these guys' lives. But like, at that point where it's like there's not, it looks like the guys are gonna die, and he can't do anything about it. He's trying. He's been go, he, you know, he's he had sex with this with this woman, and admittedly, it seemed like he was really into it. But at the same time, him doing that bought these guys a lot of time, and helped the cause a lot. So he's been doing that, and he's been going to the the wall for these guys and trying to figure out how to save their lives to the point of breaking the prime directive and you know she's she's like nagging him she looks and he's like in turmoil she looks at him and she's like what of them though what of that and it's like yes i know what of them thank you for making me feel even more like it <laughs> you know it's just like you know why well if she's supposed to be the 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 psychiatrist on the ship she should know that that's kind of rude to you know, he's thinking the same thing. Why does she have to like nag him on it? And especially since it's not like he's making a hard decision. He's 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 you know he's completely stymied. So that that sort of that sort of pissed me off. But I don't know, man. I just I enjoy these old star you know these old Star Trek episodes. I don't know what it is about him. I don't know if it's even the goofiness about him. But I mean, I wasn't sitting through this out, the show going, oh god. Well, I was at certain points, but it was almost in a good way, you know? <laughs> I don't I know. Don't know. I, I, I have I, a feeling I, you I enjoy enjoyed this it. more than I did then, cause. 
I, I enjoyed, I, 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 what I thought was a neat scene was the shot of Data sitting all alone in the, you know, in the captain's seat just on an empty bridge. I thought that was a sort of neat, neat shot. Jordy, you mean? No, it was Data when, when they, when finally, at, at, cause at the, at the very end. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, at the Data, end, that's Data right, was yeah. the only one who could function on the ship. That's right. That's right. I don't know. It's that. It's just that thing with with Ramsey. Well, we don't want to leave, and it, that bugs me enough right there that he could actually refuse to go. You know, and and you could see this moment of of indecision in Riker. He's like, well, now what do I do? You know, and then Data. He seems very undata like in this in this one part where he speaks he he to me he speaks out of turn it's it's almost like insubordination to a degree because he suddenly jumps in and he's like well you know commander Riker, he's actually got a point that you know you can't do shit because you know he's not bound by and you know you you really want Riker to be like man shut shut the up you know yeah exactly trying to hush him you know and because he does it a couple of different times during the course of the episode and I, I can just realistically see Riker getting really pissed with that. It's like, damn it, Data, whose side are you on here? You know? Yeah, but they're all they all love Data so much. With there's <laughs> there, I can't remember what he's doing, and he's doing something goofy in this, and they're all watching him like try to digest something human, you know, mentally, and they're all like sitting there, you know, doing oh Data, you know, he's so funny. Oh, the thing about the perfume. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Spraying the perfume on. You can yeah. see it in the background, just like tee hee hee. Oh, data. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, and Riker. You know, Riker is just enamored of data. He's he's fascinated with the intelligent machine. You know, Riker's one of those Kirk-like guys. He's like, hey, the universe is big and great, and there's lots of things to have sex with, and <laughs> you know, learn about, you know, and have sex with. But, the, you know, this is one of those instances, again, where I can see where the prejudice against Star Trek to people that don't care for it comes from in this instance of, you know, one, one of the criticisms I've often heard is that the people aren't realistic. Everybody's just too damn nice. Everybody's too perfect all the time. This is one of those instances you know, they they come down there to get these people. The people don't want to go, and so they stand around wringing their hands, trying to figure out. Well, gee, you know, how do we convince these people? You don't have to convince them of anything. You've got the fucking starship, phasers right? To stun. Yeah, stun <laughs> these motherfuckers, beam them up, you're done, right? And let them file a fucking protest later on when they get back to Starbase 15 or whatever. In the meantime, you've solved the fucking problem. You don't have to stand around for 45 minutes figuring out how are we going to be the nice guys and not offend anybody. You know, you've got the power. You know, you've got the the entire starship, you know, backing you up. It's stuff like that that really does sometimes bug the hell out of me with Star Trek is that, you know, yes, I don't want them flying around the universe being a bunch of assholes, but at the same rate, there's times where there's a simple solution to the problem, which is just do the easy thing and deal with the fucking consequences later. It's not like we don't see them do shit like that when it comes to, like, 
telling the primitive people that their god is a computer, you know? I right. mean, they'll do that shit and fly off and f*** all knows what happens to these poor primitive bastards, you know? They'll do shit like that, but they won't go and just beam up Ramsey and his idiot followers, you know, and be done with that situation. All of a sudden, they've got a major, you know, crisis of the Prime Directive on their hand. It's just like, come on, there's no consistency whatsoever, you know, with that sort of thing. Just every once in a while, I want to see Kirk or Picard or Riker or somebody beam down to the planet, see right through the bullshit of the situation, and go, nope, I'm not dealing with this. I don't have time for your horse shit. Get on the fucking ship or we're going to phaser you right here. You know, just every once in a blue moon, I'd love to see that. You know what it's I mean? It's a different world, man. It's a different world. I man. know, but, well, this, these are the reasons why I guess I'd never make Starfleet captain, but, you know, that's just the way I would deal with it. Like, I'd be like error, Ash. Error, error. I, I'd be like Ash from, from, you know, Army of Darkness. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Boomstick. This is my boomstick. <laughs> Right at the beginning of this episode, oh my god, the line that I just love to hear. This planet's similar to 20th century Earth, yes, of course. How about that? Yeah, how about that shit? Yeah, so is like 85% of the rest of the goddamn universe, apparently. The opener to this, the the pre-credits opener, has some of the cheesiest dialogue. I mean, it was like groan-worthy some of the lines that they were delivering and the, and just the little yucks and th- it was really some of this early stuff is really kind of painful to get through I'm sorry to say um I like that city map painting that we are shown in this episode and that's going to be reused about a billion times in the course of next gen and DS9 nice. and, and Voyager and everything. Yeah. I uh, think there's even one where nomads like a statue in that city. <laughs> where they just put nomad in. I'm sure I saw that when I was watching this episode and I was like, that looks familiar. I'm pretty sure they reused that in some other episodes. So I looked it up and yeah, there's like a, like a wiki page a mile long in all the other episodes where that same map painting is used. Uh, like, okay, I was right. I did see it again and again and again and again. I was thinking like one time, but yeah, there was, it was reused like a lot of times. Well, it's a nice map painting. That's why <laughs> it takes a cheap. Yeah. I know. Somebody had to take, take some time to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, here's one thing that I wondered about that that stupid virus. There, it was like sort of a plot element, but it wasn't. It was, you know, just a paint by numbers. Like Beverly's got to find the cure, but there was no like, how did it get on the ship? You know, how does a virus get? On I had that as one of my notes, and it was actually reading the synopsis at the beginning that solved that question for me. And in my notes, I had the the note here: what caused their cold? And the synopsis said it was something about the holodeck. I missed that. If they said that, that during yeah, the well, it, was, it started with Wesley and the other guy getting off the, you know, throwing the snowballs and getting off the holodeck or something. But what, you know, it didn't really explain why, what, yeah, and it smelled like perfume or, yeah, what did that have to do with Wesley and his buddies skiing, you know, and. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I know. It, it was just pointless. It was just there to keep them from, 
you know, from beaming the, you know, they had to have an excuse not to be able to beam the people up from the planet. Well, this is more than likely the episode that I was thinking of a while back. Remember when I called bullshit on uh, somebody or other? I guess on things coming out of the holodeck. Well, no, 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 not that. But on, on well, yeah, that too. But do- remember, Doc, I'm pretty sure it's Doctor Crusher. No, no, it's Wesley says it, and I think it might have been in last episode in Data Lore. Um, he walks in and, and Data's practicing sneezing, and. Uh, and he asked me, he says, Data, do you have a cold? And Data says, a cold what? And he says, it's a disease my mom says people used to get. And and I think there was even a previous episode that referenced the fact that people don't get people colds. People don't get and, colds, yeah. And remember I called bullshit on that. I was like, It was no. when Picard was having his hallucinations. Yeah. I knew that there was an episode where Picard got a cold. And I even remembered a part where, where Worf was sneezing. And that turns out that it's this episode... I'm going to continue, even though they come up with this stupid thing about a holodeck virus and all that, I'm still calling bullshit. This is a cold is what these people have. I mean, come on, it's all the same damn symptoms of yeah. like when you get the flu or something. And I thought they said that they cured all this shit. So <laughs> I, I feel vindicated. I feel like I was right. They Picard gets a cold. So I caught something and I felt really proud of myself for catching it because... Usually I'm not that observant when watching these things, but there was a, a great moment of foreshadowing in this episode because, um, you know, most of the crew is down at one point and we see Jordy in command up on the bridge and they call him for an engineering problem. And this is before like a whole bunch of the crew is down. I mean, you know, people are getting yeah. sick and everything, but this is before it's like at, at like, you know, crisis level yet. And they call up to the bridge, and they call specifically for an engineering problem. And Jordy starts to head out to the turbo lift, and, and uh, Worf stops him, and he says, there are people to do that job now. And it suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute. This is way before Jordy was the chief engineer. So what job was he heading out to do? Why are they calling Jordy for this? I just thought it was really interesting. You know, because if you watch yeah. these... Later on, knowing you know what happens with Jordy, it wouldn't really seem that out of place. But at this time, yeah, you're Jordy right. Was, I didn't even think about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Jordy was at this point. What did we really see? Most of the time, he was driving the ship, right? Yeah. So I, I wonder. Uh, he, it was also established that he had a very technical bent to him, right? That, that did hang out in engineering. But I wonder if somehow, some strange way, if maybe this was the episode that that maybe planted that seed. Yeah, you know where he eventually went to that role or something. It's just it's interesting. Well, they might have been They might you know they they obviously had story arcs for people, so they might have been, you know, you know we had to throw we want to throw something in on this episode, you know, <laughs> that end. I don't know. First mention of the uh, Romulans. In next gen era, next gen, in yeah. episode, which I thought was pretty cool. And I remember waiting for that to happen, but you and don't it, get to see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember waiting for for that to happen because I was really excited that you know I was actually excited that the Klingons were off the table because I was one of those people that felt like the the Klingons had become you know it's more interesting to have them incorporated into yeah. Starfleet now than it is to have them as an enemy. 
I, I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why I give um, Nemesis such a wide pass because all through all of the Star Trek films, you know, original crew and next gen, I kept waiting for what I felt was the promised Romulan battle, you know? I'm, at some point, I remember that being tossed around as a movie possibility that, that the big baddie in one of the movies was going to be the Romulans, and it just seemed like it never happened, but then finally in Nemesis it was the Romulans, and I loved it. And, uh, I remember the same thing with Next Gen as it was coming on, you know, when they started to hint that the Romulans were going to come back and that they might, you know, after the Ferengi proved to be such utter shit, that maybe the Romulans were going to come back and they were going to step up and they were going to be the Klingons of Next Gen. So I I liked that idea. So it was cool that they were laying those seeds right here. Now I wanted to go back to what you were talking about, about the holodeck. And it, it occurred to me today... Uh, solidifying my notes on this episode. You know, Worf is one shitty Klingon sometimes. Because <laughs> they come walking on, he and uh, Picard come walking out of the, uh, the turbo lift, right? And instantly, his captain is attacked. His captain is hit right in the Something face of a snowball. Worf should have whipped out his Batleth and cleaved Wesley Crusher in two right there where he stood. You wish, man. I do wish. I do wish. But he didn't do anything. I mean, at the very least, it seemed like he would have, like, pounced on the guys or something. I mean, his captain got attacked. I mean, what kind of friggin' Klingon is he that he doesn't step up and, you know, at least give him, like, a serious ass-chewing or something, you know? Or just, like, or just at least been worked up a little bit, you know? Yeah. Adrenalined up a little bit. Yeah. I agree. I think that scene would have been a lot better if, if Picard would have basically had to call Worf off from kicking their asses, you know? I think that would have been a great... <laughs> but he, was, he wasn't he was really yet... He was actually more... He was much more like Conan in this in these early episodes than what he would later become. You know, uh, so later on, he becomes... Yeah. I don't know what pussified, but he's definitely not badass Worf like he eventually becomes. You know, where everybody... Well, maybe he was already coming... No, he wasn't. That was when he caught the cold. Never mind. Yeah. But yeah, then the uh, the ho- the um, snowball flies off the holodeck and hits Picard. So that was real solid matter, I guess. See, the, but I'm telling you, it's going to come along where these things start to get inconsistent. Well, or- then when she's given the medicine too, she's giving them like a she's walking around with a thermos full of medicine. It's like, don't we use hypos now in the future? Isn't that how that worked? I don't know. I guess not. I, don't know. I thought it was like chicken. Wasn't it like chicken soup or? I, no, I she says it's gonna taste horrible, but it's gonna make you feel better. Usually, chickens. Oh. You usually don't. Uh, you usually don't take a sip of chicken soup and go. It <laughs> depends on what you're sick with, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, I, I maybe I'm thinking. Of, I'm, I think I'm thinking of another episode because I remember there being an episode where Pulaski gives somebody. Uh, she calls it PCS, and you know, PCS is Pulaski's chicken soup, but I can't remember what the hell episode that is. Maybe I was confusing the two of them. I can't wait till we get to the second season, because not only are, are the episodes better, in my opinion, but damn it, I liked Dr. Pulaski. I really did, so I'll be excited when we get to that. But, uh, yeah, just, ah. Uh, 
It's it's not that it's a horrible episode because I you know I, I'm with you. I wasn't sitting there just you know shaking my head and going, oh god, this one sucks through the whole thing. I mean, yeah, there were points of it I I I enjoyed, and there were parts that I chuckled. But there's just there's a lot of groan worthy stuff that happened. You know, this one this one's definitely very high on the groan meter. You know what I mean? And uh, and ultimately, my verdict would would uh, again be meh. You know. <laughs> Oh, this is, don't get me wrong, it's not one of my favorite episodes. It's not in one of my memorable episodes. It's sort of a cut and paste episode of different ideas. Mm-hmm. But it gets extra points for the cheesy 80s porn stylings of the whole, like, and the weird scenes with, with, um, number one dressing up in the little outfit they give him and parading <laughs> around in front of, you know, his little ear thing, yeah. yeah. If I had to rename this episode, I think I would call it Planet of the Milfs. <laughs> I think that's basically what it comes down to. But uh, yeah. So next time around, we're actually going to do one that uh, I, I have vague memories of this one, but I remember really liking it. And I remember one of the things I really liked it for was uh, a, a big, at the time, it was a big special effects sequence for Next Gen that happens at the beginning of the episode. I really liked that, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that one is, it's a bunch of numbers. I'm going to call it binary. Is, oh, it's like 1001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001001
But that, you know, when we <coughs> we did that Halloween, I think it was one of our first Halloween specials, you know, the, the stuff in Star Trek that has scared the hell out of us as kids, that guy that runs out about the tricycle, that used to scare the shit out of me when I was a kid. That guy was creepy looking. He was f***ed up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was one of those things where you were like, ooh, don't touch me, don't touch me, you're gross. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for it. Radiation. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Twotruefreaks.libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T. G-A-R-D-N-E-R Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. There we go. Skype. I just had an idea. Uh huh. Not with this one, but sometime in the future. Uh huh. When we do like an episode. Uh huh. We'll both record it. Uh huh. And then we will both cut it. Uh huh. And rec- and and release it twice. 
<laughs> That's a cool idea. Just to see what the two different see the what the two different cuts would look like. In our, like. Yeah, in our in our editing style. That's a yeah, cool idea. I when like we that ahead, idea. When we're ahead of the game and we got time to dick around, we, we should do that. I think that would be really funny. See, like what different? I think I I think when it comes right down to it, the only thing that would be basically different would be like the musical score. Right. And it would be interesting to see. I think it'd be neat okay, to put so them up side by side and see if if the listeners can figure out who scored which. Right. Oh yeah. See. Yeah. Who did? Who edited which episode? That would be great. That could be a contest or something. I like that idea. Did you have anything else before we? No, I got nothing. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really either. I was kind of just what you call it. Treading water? Tread, well, not dre- what, what's the term? Uh, vamping. I was kind of vamping. So you said you're going to do the... Uh, the yeah, I was just uh, thinking cool. it wasn't... Fa- I saw my compendium and I'm like, oh, you've got to always do both of them each time. I might as well... It's about read, time you step up, damn it. <laughs> read one of the... <laughs> oh, that's cool. I don't mind doing it. But yeah. I haven't. I haven't even read. I've got the pages marked, but I hadn't actually read them. So I hope that these are are good synopses. This because you know usually the compendium one is really good, but then the one for next gen. A lot of times I, I feel like it doesn't hit enough of the the core, the story points. You know, like the relevant points of the story that I, I feel are important. But that's okay because we can always, if they leave it out, we can always get to them. You that's know, true. That's we true. We can always remedy it. That's very true. Let me get my notes. Pull. I actually have my notes on paper. One, two, three. Let me bring it back and hand it off, or how do you want sure. it? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> Which number is this? Is this 25? Yes. Okay. C. That's all I had on cut and paste it on that oh well there's there's more to it oh yeah well that was all like non-star trek related i think i just cut the hang on oh all right i, I okay i see what you're saying it was just him talking about other shows and stuff oh, you okay know? all right i'll go on to the uh <clears throat> yeah excuse me <laughs> so yeah uh, all right this should be fun because this episode sucks. So it's always more fun when the episode sucks. At least I think so. <laughs> Don't you think? Let me get this. Uh, yeah. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't know if it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> don't argue. Save the show. <laughs> You want me to bring you want me to bring it in and uh pass it off off to you? Yeah, that sounds good. Let me uh flip to the appropriate page. Ooh, we got a picture of uh Troy's cleavage in the on the page here. Oh, the new there's there's a bunch of nude pictures of her. Yeah, she she's but that's the funny thing is, you know, I don't think she's attractive anyway, but she's definitely not good looking with her clothes off she's she, she's like denise crosby i mean denise crosby i think is smoking hot but then you see her with her clothes on she's like you know that really wasn't worth waiting for maybe she just took her clothes off too late could be she droopy she got the droopy boob thing going on 
Droobs. Droobs. <laughs> Droobies. Droobies. Drooby, drooby, doo. <laughs> drooby, drooby, doo. Where are you? <laughs> Got some work to do now. <laughs> Over here. <laughs> Oh, oh, that ain't right. <laughs> it just ain't right. <coughs> oh, God, man. I made my brisk iced tea go down the wrong fucking shoe. <coughs> God, so man, freeze in my, in my carburetor. <laughs> oh, God. What was that? Speed buggy? Speed buggy. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> See, this is why I can't remember anything, because my mind is fucking full up with all these... With all that <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> fucking speed buggy. <laughs> like fucking wheelie in the chopper bunch. And... <clears throat> all right. <laughs> Ah, uh, I'm sorry. I'll bring it back in. <laughs>